Greetings, Space Burgers, and a big warg to all of you during another episode of Pandemic Podcasting 2020. My guest today is someone who I've become friends with thanks to a suggestion from, I want to say, Daniel. Apologies if I've forgotten your name. I have forgotten your name. Uh, but I think it was Daniel who reached out uh, and said, hey, I think you guys would uh, enjoy one another's company. I listen to both of your podcasts. And uh, he was right. We've done some events together she invited me to this cool dinosaur talk and um and then just general hangout she's she's really good at communicating science just in general but she's also really good about connecting the science community at large in la it seems like so we've done some dinners and things like that it's really fun to uh, hang out with rocket scientists and people just in a casual setting that she puts together it's just really cool and beyond that she's just a fascinating person who knows a lot of stuff she's well researched you probably know her from the skeptics guide to the universe or her own podcast talk nerdy and you know she doesn't go off on weird pseudoscience things and believe anything without a very skeptical eye and a critical eye for detail research evidence all the things you like to see so when these uh videos go swarming around that take off and everyone goes what do you think of this she's a great resource to look at and say well here's what we know Here's what's absolutely false, and here's why you should ignore this part and this part, etc. Anyway, happy to do a Zoom chat. This is kind of a longer one. I hope you're up for it. I think you'll enjoy it. Here's a, a conversation with PhD candidate in clinical psychology, Cara Santa Maria. Okay, sweet. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. We're recording. All right. Dramatic change in gears. I get focused. I get into my <laughs> podcasting um, host. I, it's hard to not do that. I think when headphones go on, I think the natural thing is to just suddenly find yourself. Or maybe it's because you're hearing your own voice. You just talk a little differently. And so, I don't at all when I podcast. Well, first of all, I always turn my monitor off, so I don't listen to myself. Oh, I just, you're I just, just look hearing at the, me. Yeah, I'm only hearing you. So I just look at like the squiggles to make sure that I'm getting a, a good signal. But I, I never listen to myself when I podcast. So that helps also yeah. i'm always half asleep because for some <laughs> reason my assistant is always booking them like for times when i'm just rolling out of bed so it's like coffee in one hand i'm like who is this person i'm interviewing what did you do i'm reading the insert from the book like that the publisher <laughs> sent me and i'm like oh so you wrote a book about snails let's talk about snails <laughs> <laughs> and like you I mean I think listeners could probably tell that of my show like the second half I'm a lot more awake and I'm asking way better questions <laughs> does some of it because this podcasting thing is the equivalent of shows maybe that went on like Mr. Rogers if you watch that documentary they at some point oh. kind of ran out of new things new ground to cover like we've done this you only teach kids the letter J so many times or by the way though how hard did you cry watching the Mr. Rogers documentary? I didn't cry as hard as I expected. You didn't cry? I was expecting to be like balls to the wall so sad, but it's it's sort of like meeting your heroes kind of thing. Like one, 
when he asked uh, his his gay friend to not go to that gay bar anymore. Well, yeah, but it was also like the 60s or something. I don't care. No, I don't care, like, in the sense that, yeah, that's terrible, but also I think he was smart enough to know that, like, his show would have been boycotted. Yeah. That was the sad thing. Like, everybody was, would have lost everything at the time. But and he's so from... Me, and he was super religious. So for me, seeing him, like, come around... Yeah. ...at the end to being, like, super pro-gay rights and, like, you know, loving his gay friend, who was also black, by the way, yeah. and who he also was, like, really doing a lot of cool, like, interracial stuff on television that nobody was doing. I don't know. It yeah. Just, it got me in the in the heart, that documentary. I know. I, I think he just lived such a great life. I didn't feel as sad as I thought. I thought mm, he impacted true. so many people, and he lived everything that he wanted to exude, including what you're saying. Like, for me to be upset that he did that makes it sound like i discredited his entire life uh, not at all i th- I like that he had the if you were watching a movie and you're like oh that that arc of that character yeah. was really great like um, he developed yeah he like totally. he was amazing and then he got more amazing yeah and but he I started think- at such a weird level where you know he had like servants as a kid he was ultra wealthy yeah so he didn't come from a place of having much to lose and still giving up something of himself it's pretty fascinating to me And I think what hit me really hard watching that doc is that like, yes, he was a theologian and yes, he was like a pastor and like there was all that religiosity stuff, which usually puts a bad taste in my mouth, but like didn't because he was also very secular in the way that he like Mm -hmm. had a public appearance. But what really I think affected me heavily was how much of a, I mean, he was basically a psychologist without having gone to school for it. And like his fundamental understanding of early childhood development and psychology was just amazing and the backlash like that people literally think that mr rogers is the reason that like narcissistic personality disorder exists or like that somehow because he told every kid that they were special just for who they are and not because of all the hard work they'd done that that's like a moral failure i mean it's just (laughs) insane to me because he's like the epitome of morality i feel like everybody needs to watch this doc yeah feel good about the world for like two seconds yeah yeah hopefully i didn't put a bad taste in your mouth as as far as like oh well now i don't need to see it i, I just didn't cry no, as much I as i was expecting it. that's all i was yeah saying. i, I, I mean i expected it. everybody in the 60s to be anti-gay like i feel like <laughs> only the most like you know progressive and the thing is like you would think he was a conservative because he was ultra religious like so his like thing that he did with the swimming moderate. pool yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Extremely, uh, almost like counterculture, kind of punk rock to be like, this is what's going around. They're putting acid in swimming pools. Here's what we're doing. Yeah, Fire it up. That'd be the equivalent together. of a punk band going into like a very hostile environment and singing their balls off and being like, we're here to push back against you. This machine yeah. fights fascism. That kind of like, we're saying something with our platform to push back. I, he did that in a cool, in a really like, if something stood to get him canceled, I would think that would have been the first one. Yes. But the interesting thing is, I think that I don't want to say using children because I don't think that's a fair way to put it. Cause he really genuinely respected and loved children, but like, showing social ills through the lens of childhood makes them that much more dramatic. Mm. And so like his kids aren't racist. Right. And like kids aren't sexist or homophobic or whatever. They have to learn that stuff from their 
bigoted parents. Yeah. And so like this was a show for children and it was a really inclusive show. So doing this cool kind of pro civil rights work on the show, which you're right probably pissed a lot of people off but it's like you you can't come out and argue against it you can't be like white feet and black feet in the same pool that's wrong (laughs) because then it's clear that you are racist if you argue against that yeah and i can see the maybe from that lens like what you see through the show and who the characters are if they never mention anyone's sexuality that's one thing. If there's if all the characters are leading nightlives that get paparazzi in the mix, that could be the reason. Like, hey, hey you can't go to those bars. We can't get you. You the same I think way that's you, all he was saying too. I think he was basically like, you can be gay, but you can't get in trouble for it. Yeah, like because then that reflects on all of us, and it like it puts everything at risk. Because at the time, it, there were laws against sodomy. You know what I mean? Like you could go to prison for for being caught in a gay bar which is disgusting yeah but it's also like bigger than mr rogers like he couldn't change legislation so um and i think that it was interesting to see how he personally came around to because obviously there was a part of him that was always tolerant mm-hmm. otherwise he wouldn't have promoted having him on the show and been such a friend to him over the years but the fact that he ultimately also then developed a great love and respect and like progressive view towards LGBTQ rights I yeah. think is really cool and I don't think you could say that about a lot of pastors no or ministers yeah yeah typically they <laughs> the, the only stories we hear about them is the thing they rail against they end up being caught in a hotel room doing mm. exactly that over oh and God, over all the time I know <laughs> I hope I there's it. a website somewhere <laughs> that just catalogs just those stories because it would be a dense read it's so, yeah. <laughs> so common I think yeah. the part where I got the most emotional and that's because seeing someone's story and, you know, like seeing the, the rough edges, the, uh, the characters that he would play, like the, the King, I think where he would, you know, members of his family were like, yeah, yeah. That almost makes him seem like a psychopath in a weird way where like, he couldn't talk to you like himself, but he could be the cat and be like, I'm scared and I want you to help me. Uh, and like, that's like he would do that at it. his like dinner table when he was like mad at his kids. <laughs> yeah. He would like bring out the angry puppet. It was like the only way. And they're like, Oh, he's got the puppet. Oh no. Yeah. The queen's here. That's me strange. Your father (laughs) being some queen puppet yelling at you. Uh, But seeing like the way he impacted people, like two things you brought up, the kids and like his ability in that was fascinating. And then um, when the guy, when the guy who was gay starts breaking down because Mr. Rogers is like, I see you and wondering like how long it was going to take you to realize I've been seeing you and I see you for who you are mm. that this many years later and who knows how many times he's told that story and he's still getting choked up. That's where I was like, mm. that's when I cried the hardest too, yeah. for sure. Oof. And I mean, the few times that, that I'd like, you know, had tears kind of coming out of my eyes where I wasn't really crying hard were the times when I think, it got very kind of existential because I think that was a really cool thing about Mr. Rogers and that the documentary plays out really well is that, you know, what seemed on the surface like a silly kid show about puppets was actually the most real thing on television across almost all genres because he was talking about real life issues and he was talking about, you know, um, identity and, and comfort in identity and understanding why we're here and, you know, who we are and like dealing with things like death and loneliness and meaningless, like these core existential 
issues that I am now dedicating my academic career towards, it really resonated for me to see them play out in a real way. It was almost like this mini society that he developed that was in some ways very utopian and not utopian in the sense that there was no bad or no suffering, but utopian in the sense that people didn't run from the bad or run from the suffering, that they were willing to explore those emotions and talk about them honestly and authentically, which we don't really do in our society. Well, that must have blown people's minds. I think they bring it up briefly either in that one or it was maybe the story that the movie's based on, the article in the magazine where mm-hmm. a kid, you know, brings up someone dying and the natural reaction to that is to kind of coddle them or as an adult go, let's not think about that or who wants some ice cream and yeah. for him to get down at their level and like look them in the eye and be like, how do you feel about that? Like, what do you yeah. think that is? To, to, for the first time to someone that someone saw that especially publicly must have been so revelatory like we can talk like this our kids yeah because the, the kid didn't like freak out no the kid not was at like all. whoa yeah let's talk about this yeah um and there's so there's this really great book on existential psychotherapy by Irvin Yalom where he talks about there's a whole chapter dedicated to children and their perceptions of death because of course children do have to experience death not all children but some children do and that a very common thing like you said that parents do when their kids start to grapple with these ideas is that they'll either dismiss them and say, you don't have to worry about that. Let's have some ice cream. Or one of the very common things that they'll do is they'll say, well, yes, people die, but kids don't die. Mm -hmm. Only older people die. Like you die when you're old and you're sick. So you don't have to worry. But then what happens when a child does die? How prepared is that child for those experiences? You know, because children do die. And so, um, you know, he recommends as a psychotherapist and you know to a lot of parents that kind of the best way to approach it is to ask them questions because kids actually know a lot more than you think already Mm -hmm. and if they don't know it helps you gauge what they're ready for so if a kid's like what happens when you die instead of saying well you know you don't have to worry or um you know you go to heaven and you're blah 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 you might say well what do you think happens and then try and dig deep and there's some great um examples in his book of children that they interviewed where one who had lost his her mother i think and she said well where's mommy now and she said mommy's sleeping and then they said Uh, well can you wake her up and they said no it's a different kind of sleep she's never going to wake up and I mean there's like a really profound understanding of death right there in a through a childlike lens but still there's a lot of depth in that so yeah I uh, I remember when the crocodile hunter died and uh, his wife talking about their daughter which who has the greatest origin of a name maybe ever her name's Bindi named after Steve Irwin's favorite crocodile Bindi Sue which yeah. I remember being like, not a lot of people are named after a crocodile that appealed <laughs> to their parent. But her, the mother was like, uh, and I apologies, I don't, I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but she was like, I think she'll handle this better than the the average public. Who He's a hero. He's this famous person. To her, it's her father, but also she grew up on basically a nature preserve and sees the cycle of life all the time so this is just something that her dad had prepared her for like it happens you know it's going to happen uh and i would wonder what conversations like that are like with kids where they're so exposed to death yeah i mean maybe that's happening right now if you're if you're 
parent works in a nursing home or something like that and you have a child that or they have a grandparent that's there and like where's this woman that i was nice with where's grandmother where's grandma's mm-hmm. other friend at some point you're gonna be like yeah it's this is common it's gonna keep happening yeah, I've thought about, you know, when I'm trying to develop my my dissertation project, and I think I've pretty much settled in on, on the qualitative um, uh, investigation that I plan to do, but I was spending quite a bit of time in Southern Africa last year um, and really enjoying especially my time in Namibia. And there was a part of me that I started reading a lot of books about the Himba, which is like a, an indigenous group of people that um, live in Southern Africa. Um, and I started to think about, because of course I, I study death, like this is my area of interest now, um, exactly what you just mentioned, this idea of like, how how is death defined in the Himba? What do they do when somebody's dying and how do the children cope with it? And what are the responses by the elders? Um, because this is a culture that is so much closer to death in that they're living in oftentimes these kind of preserve areas where there are large game. Um, You know, it's not common, but it does happen where a lion might actually take somebody's infant or where an elephant will have a stampede and somebody might get injured. Mm -hmm. And then also that they're seeing animals die as well um, regularly. And so, I, I've definitely been interested in that idea, and I don't know. I mean, I've kind of looked a bit into the literature, and I haven't really found much about kind of these, I don't know, individual um, understandings or relationships with deaths in different cultures that mm-hmm. have more exposure to death. But my assumption, which is based on something called terror management theory, is that, yeah, the more you think about death, the less... Um, the less kind of horrific it seems to you. And so you're going to fear it less in your everyday life. I wonder how that underlies so many psychological issues. Yeah. I I think there's like knowing very little about that. Like the, the flip side of that or the side of that, that worries me a little bit is people that like say during something like this, uh, mm-hmm. When I was a kid, like I grew up around a lot of animals. Typically, you'd find out death had happened by some sort of trail of feathers or fur or something like yeah. that. <laughs> you know, like you go, ah, shit, coyotes got here or something like that. Uh, or you might wake up and something's just laying out in the pen. And you're like, damn, fish floating upside down as people come to. There's something about the disconnect there of like death has happened and I've discovered that it did happen the first Mm. time we had an animal and it was a goat that i didn't even care about he was kind of a jerk if you were walking along and not paying attention he might come and butt you and like damn it and uh and then he got old and the vet came out and put him down and so that was the first death that i was really aware of in there and i was beside myself and i was so shocked like i didn't even like this goat it was just something where like we had a relationship he would butt me and be kind of a jerk but like i started thinking about all those things like oh that was our that was our relationship he probably liked that and kind of liked that i didn't like him and that was how we got you know interacted with each other and I just had probably what everyone does, all those feelings of I should have done this differently or how could I have avoided this or prolonged his life. But being there and seeing it, definitely, if I had just seen him laying in the pen the next day, I would have just been like, Ugh, 
I guess the budding is over with, but I wouldn't yeah. have had the impact. And so I think people now, as this is happening, might read the death toll numbers. And that's why people are so excited to go outside and not wear masks as the terror management theory. I think to them, it's not real. And, and maybe even it's just a manipulated number that is not even in any way real. And that frightens me. And so you're saying because they're not, um, they're not like exposed to it at a sort of carnal level, like they're just seeing a number on a screen, but they're not. So, you know, obviously, and, and they're, as the number rises, that's going to change. It's already started to change. Like most people know somebody who knows somebody who's been affected yeah. and, or know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, but eventually it may not be that distant from you yeah. to have exposure to somebody who died of COVID-19. Um, but yeah, I think that it's, you know, it, it, you see those tentacles throughout our society we many people are more comfortable eating processed food because it seems farther away from the death of the animal um i think for a lot of people uh mortality salience uh, in our society is very very low we we medicalize death when people die we whisk them the bodies away it's uncommon for people to die in the home we don't wash them we don't prepare them ourselves we don't have a lot of cultural and when i say we i'm really using the royal we so obviously there are um, this is a melting pot country. And when I talk about American society, like I'm talking about, sadly, the ethnocentric monocultural society, like I'm not talking about societies that actually do have really, I think, healthy relationships with death. Um, but on the whole, when somebody dies, it's like, get the body gone immediately. I don't want to see it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to feel it. Maybe if it's an open casket funeral, the, um, mortician is going to prepare it to look as much like it's still alive as possible, mm -hmm. which is a very strange thing. Yeah. Um, people don't spend time with the body and watch normal early stages of death. Like, you know, right after somebody dies, a lot of things happen. And I'm not talking weeks later. I'm talking like within the first few hours, things happen and it becomes very apparent that that person is not in there anymore. And that, you know, a lot of people hypothesize is actually a very healthy process to go through is being near a dead body, because as you're near a dead body, you come to grips with the fact that they're actually dead and you go through a lot of these emotional experiences. And also one of the major things that we do, especially the first time that we deal with loss, is that we mourn our own deaths we start to think about the fact that like, oh shit, this means I could die. And yeah. we become really aware of our own mortality, which is healthy it's something we need to do um but unfortunately a lot of americans go through their entire lives like never really getting close to death not knowing what to do when it finally does happen to them not being prepared emotionally psychologically um and it's it's really overwhelming for them because it's the first time that they've ever really even thought about it it's like I, after it happens i had a steady progression of like animal deaths and maybe distant kind of relatives and that sort of thing. And then the horse that I had known my whole life, I grew up on, I learned to ride on him, got old and I was a teenager and, uh, he was stumbling, he was crossing this ditch and he stumbled and I raced out, I climbed through the fence and jumped across the Creek and lifted his head up and he just died in my arms. Aww. And it was the most sat, not satisfying. <laughs> that sounds like a weird word, but it, it made the most sense of anything, especially death 
that has ever happened. Yeah. Any trans, anything that transpires in your life where you're like, wait, what? I, 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 everything made sense. His age, what had happened. I, my dad came out and was like, are you okay? And I was just weird. Like, I'm totally fine. Like I knew this yeah. was coming. He was getting old. I did everything I could to kind of try to prolong it, but it just happened. And like to be there and help him with it, weirdly helpful, weirdly that mm. I didn't just watch through a window. Like that doesn't look good. So yeah. maybe, maybe that plays into the psychology where we do, we only know death is something that happens in the other room or, you know, like, yeah. With like experts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it's not something that, you know, I mean, I think we are starting to get more like, back to an older view like now that people have better access to at-home hospice care so like at least if you are terminal and you are declining and you know that like you're going to die like somewhat naturally you and you have the time to set up that ability you may want to die at home and like have those provisions available to you to do so yeah but um historically you know most people died in the home and in a lot of other cultures most people die in the home but in western society it's become very prevalent that that the vast majority of people actually die in a hospital yeah. and i mean i get it if it's accident injury you know traumatic death but if we're talking like long-term illness you know palliative care stuff like i i wouldn't want to die in a hospital would you no i mean i'm thinking of a friend of mine who died it was family there every day and mm -hmm. him in a kind of vegetative state and knowing like he's going to die in this hospital but everyone's there people touching him yeah. surrounding him hearing their voices um my grandmother in like hospice and so like a hospital bed basically in the living room for her final yeah. days like i think a yeah. lot of people have that and yeah i think that's more common if you're if you still have your home and you want some familiarity and some comfort mm -hmm. um you know and eventually yeah you're going to put your bed where you most want to spend your time and a lot of people just don't want to be in bed like you have yeah. to be physically in bed but you don't want to be like in your bedroom yeah, you want to yeah. be like be able to look out that window or sit by the fireplace or mm -hmm. you know wherever you used to spend most of your time so yeah, yeah when you say lovely, um monocultural meaning like you're saying like we're kind of homogenized as a country like as the u.s oh so yeah like ethnocentric monoculturalism is the term in sort of social justice diversity you know academic um uh, parlance that means like like the u.s is ethnocentric meaning that it's a white centric country even though like in certain parts of the country obviously there's minority majorities there's still a dominant white power in the u.s like there's white political power like racism can't happen towards white people right like because they're we they are in positions of power and so that's the ethnocentric like there's a white centric view of the u.s and monoculturalism yeah is the tendency to think of that sort of white male straight protestant like however you want to put it culture as being normative and yeah. everything else being like a subculture or like a different culture <laughs> or you know like that's the monoculturalism oh i like, see so it's actually like it's 
not the way things should be i don't think it's unfortunately the way things are a lot of people are trying to work against that um and so when i was talking about those views i was kind of painting a broad brush like gotcha by and large that's how american society handles things but of course you know mexican americans um and especially those that are very religious might do things differently we know that like jewish americans do things very very differently yeah Um, there are death you know rituals in, in certain cultures in my community um like or you know all of la saw the memorial service for nipsey hustle and it mm-hmm. feels like people on four wheelers and it's a big mm-hmm. like we're celebrating we're celebrating this life we're all getting together i don't know who could watch that and not feel some level of like why no more why don't more cultures do this why don't more mm. communities do this where not everyone in that parade knew this person but they're all there to represent and show like he was part of us part of this community uh and where i live there's a lot of latino people and if someone dies you'll just quietly know about it you just might see people walking down the street holding one of those tall candles with like a picture of a saint on it and they'll just Mm -hmm. set it outside the fence with some flowers or something so it's really a bummer every now and again you walk somewhere and see a, a bunch of those candles and go oh one that's really sweet that everyone just kind of knew like i'm gonna keep my distance but i just want you to know i'm thinking about you and i thought that was a cool cultural thing i don't know uh maybe we all do our own version of that it doesn't have to be candles and saints but uh the the rituals that we do you know because think about when you get the news and you're like well i don't know that they want to be bombarded with phone calls a text seems impersonal so we start going through all these yeah because we don't really have a lot of ritual like our dominant society doesn't really have a lot of death ritual like Mm -hmm. if you look across the globe at you know specific societies it's very common that you see like classic death rituals like a lot of them are religiously influenced but some of them are are influenced by like indigenous beliefs and there will be like a whole thing that everybody does like the person dies and then they wash the body and they wrap them in these things and then they put them on the raft or they do whatever like or they stay in the home for x number of days and then they bring them out and people mourn or you know they wail on the ground and they cry really really loudly and it's like almost like a very dramatic kind of because that's like culturally what you're supposed to do um but in the U.S., it's very kind of quiet, dignified. It's, I mean, my view is that we are a death-denying society. I do think that there's some scholastic argumentation against that. And I think that those there are fair points that are made. It's also, again, really hard to paint the U.S. with a broad brush. But generally speaking, in the West, I, I think we could, we could use some improvement on our relationship <laughs> with death. Have you, like, can you think locally and, or act, think globally and act locally in that regard? Like, have you changed your personal response to when you hear someone died? Huh, interesting. Like, my personal emotional response or, like, what I do interpersonally, like, with Yeah, interpersonally. Like, could you, because if someone sees something that might be, you know, the first time you see, you know, you see life hacks, you see, the first time you see someone create a new behavior and go, ooh, I like that. They signed off mm-hmm. their email and they said, ciao, blah, 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 or something. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I, I'm stealing that. Yeah. Is there, something, <laughs> is there something you see where you're like, yeah, I want to, next time there's a death and I with someone close to me or someone that I can reach out to, I can do this. 
I think for me, and it, part of it maybe has to do with kind of my ecological niche in that, like who I am to my friends and, you know, everybody kind of has their identity and like, I'm not the person that somebody goes to for like platitudes. Like everybody knows that they don't come to me to like, just say stuff that'll make them feel better. Even if it's not true, <laughs> like that's just not the kind of friend I am. Uh -huh. So I'm very hard truth honest raw but also very authentic and like i think compassionate empathetic and like open and so i do think that my what i maybe offer to some of my friends who are facing illness in their within their families or is that like they can talk to me and they don't have to be afraid to talk about like hard stuff like it doesn't make me like eked out I don't mm -hmm. get queasy about it and I don't change the subject really quickly. And I don't just try to comfort, like shut them down with comfort, yeah. you know, like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Psh, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> like, which is what a lot of people do. Yeah. It's like, they can't handle the discomfort of the silence, like of the feelings really overflowing. But I think a lot of this is just my therapy training is like, you know, I can just be with you if you're dealing with your grief and like anything go, you can be angry around me. You can be like, you know, sad, you can be happy. I'm not going to judge you for it. Um, and so really, I mean, what do you do culturally though, when somebody loses somebody, it depends on how close I am to them. Do I send them flowers? Do I send them a card? Do I just send them a, an emoji? You know, it really depends, but I think what I can and do generally try to offer is just that like I've hopefully proven or developed a trust over the course of my relationship with these you know, most of the people that I'm close to that I'm going to be that kind of friend to you. Like if you don't want to be alone, but you can't handle being around a bunch of people that are going to like uncomfortably comfort you. Cause they don't know what else to say. Like yeah. you can come just exist with me and mm -hmm. that's fine. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I think it can, cause you didn't use the term and it doesn't sound like coldness but when you use terms like blunt or mm. you know like i'm are, are, honest. I'm honest you know i'm gonna i'm gonna say these things. it sounds like we can sometimes adopt these personas that are closed off and that's not what it is it's not just no, being like i feel I, nothing yeah i see it as just like genuine i think is what i'm going for like just honest mm -hmm. and so like i have friends you know who have parents right now who have chronic illnesses and stuff and like obviously i'm not going to force them to talk to me about what it's like i might periodically ask them questions but usually it's because i'm reading their their body language and i can tell that they want to talk or they're open to it but i'm also like you know the kind of person where if they're going to ask me a question, I'm going to talk about advanced directives and I'm going to talk about like, are you ready? Have you read? I might recommend books or, you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And if it's too much, I can tell and I can temper that. But um, I'm definitely not the kind of person where, you know, I have a friend who's, you know, mom has stage four cancer. I'm not going to be like, oh, that sucks. Never <laughs> talk about that again, which is what a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. like, We're just not going to go there because I don't know how to hold space yeah like for me it's just about like i want to be able to hold space and whatever form whatever emotional form that space takes um i it's it's okay with me yeah i don't know i like that yeah do you think these things are formed from everyone has their own set of i mean it's nature and nurture in a number of ways but do you feel like I used to think it would be better if you were kind of hardened by life that, you know, you suffer a bunch of loss early on. I went through a phase where it was just seemed brutal. And then you just kind of get where like, all right, it's easier if I just don't feel anything because yeah. to go through this and make lasting friendships and create a number of 
things that are inevitably going to be severed, whether it's you leaving early or them leaving early, it's what, somehow or another, these connections are all going to get severed. And so uh, people have a reaction from time to time to like, not going to make anymore. Just going to kind of go through stoically. Sure. It's Arrival, right? Wait, have you seen Arrival? Or read yeah, the yeah. story of your life and others? Okay, so like, spoiler alert, but the movie's <laughs> freaking old now, people. So like, if you haven't seen it yet, fine. Watch I don't know, Arrival. fast forward for 10 yeah. seconds. Ba- pause here, go watch Arrival. Exactly, <laughs> and then come back. But this idea, like, if you knew what was going to happen, would you still do it all over again? And I think that a very my very sort of and again i use this term existential a lot because that's what i'm steeped in in my so just to be clear like i'm i have a master's in neuroscience but i'm i took like a decade off so i've been working as a science communicator for ages i did my master's in 07 i decided to go back to school a couple of years ago uh three years now to study clinical psychology so i'm training to be a clinical psychologist which means therapist if i can just pause you there Mm-hmm. It's it seems crazy that it's been three years because I it I, seems like I two days ago you were telling me you were going to do that and I was like so befuddled that you have like a thousand things going on and you're like oh and then addition I'm gonna go get a PhD I, just I know if you like, could see you guys can't see me but I'm cradling my face in my hands right now <laughs> uh, yeah it's a lot it's I'm actually on leave this and I can talk about that in a minute which is really funny it's like a embarrassment of um, just COVID put a wrench in everybody's everything but but yeah so i'm studying clinical psych and the phd is you know in clinical psych but my concentration is in social justice and diversity so that's kind of like what i focus on so you at my school you could do forensics you could do neuropsych you could do parent infant health um there's a few different ones that i I chose to focus on um social justice and diversity and then you also my training uh, protocol at my school is that you you have an orientation. So some schools don't do that because a lot of institutions are just pure CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, for good reason. It's very evidence-based. It's what they're going to reimburse you for and manage care, blah, blah, blah. But my school happens to offer three different concentrations. So you can do CBT, you can do psychodynamic, which is like modern psychoanalysis, like modern Freudian stuff. Um, and then um, you can also be uh, existential humanistic. And so that's where I've really focused my my orientation. So that's the lens through which I do research and through which I do therapy is this existential humanistic lens. Therefore, I think about things in these terms. I think about these big questions of identity and meaning and loss and death and suffering and interpersonal relationships. Um, And I'm a secular existentialist, so I don't believe in God. Um, That doesn't mean that many of my clients don't also i respect you know everybody who i see i respect their views and understand that that's part of their worldview especially as they're facing death but um but my kind of views are are developed through this very humanistic existential lens and so to get back to what you're saying about it might seem like coldness or it might seem like a ruggedness or this idea of like would you just decide not to fall in love or not to have the child if you knew you were going to lose them and it was going to be so painful? Well, my view is that without that pain, the love would never be as strong. And without that love, the pain wouldn't have been as strong. Like you need both feelings because they complement each other and that suffering really is a big part of life, but you don't have to be a nihilist about suffering. Like through suffering, you can find a lot of meaning and resiliency and, you can know yourself better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I like that. Yeah. So knowing it, like being in your emotions. One thing that I've developed an understanding of personally, because I've been in therapy most of my life, but I've never seen an existential psychologist until recently. And, you know, I take meds for depression and I... I had a not great relationship with my feelings. I, I was like what you mentioned, you know, I was sad my whole life. I was depressed. I was down. I finally took meds and kind of balanced out a little, but I never wanted to like be in my feels like that sucked. <laughs> you know, I'd be like talking to a shrink and they'd be like, well, let's go to this place. And I'm like, why would I do that? I worked so hard to stay out of that place. Like, it's a horrible <laughs> idea, but I've, I've been really like into mindfulness and meditation and just like introspection and reading a lot of existential readings a lot more lately. And so my approach to feelings has been very different, which is that like, you don't have to be overwhelmed. You don't have to drown in your feelings. You can have them and you can have them in a healthy way and you can have kind of like a curiosity about them. And that's what I try to do when I start to feel very strong feelings Mm -hmm. is that instead of running from them, instead of denying them, but also instead of kind of like submitting to them. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but like drowning in them like I used to when I was younger. Instead, I kind of approach them curiously and I ask them questions and I try to understand them. Mm -hmm. I like it. I mean, but that takes work. Like it's hard to do that at the beginning. You have to kind of stabilize yourself before you can start to approach those things curiously and really for me it came from i don't know dave do you meditate i do it in different ways when i run Mm -hmm. i feel like that Mm -hmm. gets me in a very meditative state i don't listen to music or anything like that and i i Mm -hmm. typically when i've meditated like purposefully you know and i i have some friends that prior to this we were starting we only went once but like these guided group meditations really fun and we both let we both went into it very skeptically and they were the couple that hosts that are like we know this we call it hippie (laughs) night it's such like a silly hippie dippy kind of la thing and i've tried to i'm from like the cowboy world and and so from i've tried to kind of avoid having these preconceived kind of i'm not doing that hippie stuff i want to be open to kind of whatever but it if i'm honest there's definitely a part of me that was like oh boy here we go and it was so yeah yeah i think just like i'm like don't talk about chakras (laughs) like please don't get into like crystals or like reiki like that's you know beyond the pale but yeah but but yeah when you actually start to meditate you know in this real kind of for me it's very secular for a lot of people they might use the word spiritual i just think of it more as like a consciousness like psychology introspection thing and i don't think it has to have any sort of supernatural component to it but um one of the things that you know scared me at first about meditation and the reason i felt like i couldn't do it when i used to did we talk? Oh, I, I keep going on tangents, but they're all come. Back, they're all going to come back. Did we talk the last time I was on your show about that crazy study where they put people alone in a room, and first they gave them a survey to say like, how likely are you to harm yourself? And most people were like, not at all. And then they put them alone in a room with the only thing to do was like, there was a machine that shocked them. Oh yeah, yeah, and, like, yeah. The, we did yeah, the vast majority of people like <laughs> physically hurt themselves because they just didn't want to sit there. Like, <laughs> I think they alone with their own thoughts. They're like, I'd rather hurt myself. Um, (laughs) I gotta feel something. Exactly. And so that's kind of like what meditation, why it's so scary to most people. It's like, oh, I don't want to get in there and start to get overwhelmed, right? And so I remember one time somebody telling me 
and this is why I always want to say it out loud to as many people who will hear, because if you're, if there's like one person who's feeling the way I was, this really helped me as I was like, people are like, imagine that, you know, it's a river. So you're, you're closing your eyes and you're listening to your thoughts. It's not about not thinking. It's about focusing on the breath or focusing on a mantra and allowing your thoughts to arise and then curiously and non-judgmentally yes. putting, like letting them float away and then yeah. moving back, right? And That's what we did in the guided thing. And it was so helpful. It was yeah. just great to like, let those things flutter in. And like, if it spends too much time and like, is this helpful or kind of bad? Like, it's kind of bad. Just send it away. Just it let was, it, yeah. It's like, it's there. It mm -hmm. exists, but you're going to, and so uh, I would, you know, I'd imagine this like river and that was kind of what a lot of people talk about flowing water or clouds, or they'll use some sort of like, you know, guided imagery. And so they're like, there's this river and the river can be tumultuous, right? Like you've got a lot of shit in there and the river can be like white water rapids. And I'm like, I don't want to drown. And they're like, <laughs> oh, you're not in the river. You're sitting on the banks. And when they told me that, I was like, oh, <laughs> like, like you're watching it go by like yeah. you don't have to be in it when you're meditating and i was like oh my god and there was like a safety and an empowerment in that and that's really always stuck with me and i even when i did finally see an existential therapist which it was weird and interesting and i don't know i i don't know if it's right for me which is funny because i'm trying to be one maybe i shouldn't say that but she was <laughs> interesting but one thing she would always say which is like such a cliche but i have to be honest it like it works like it it's meaningful to me but she would always say do you have your feelings or do your feelings have you yeah and i know that sounds so stupid it's like a stupid thing to say but if you really start to unpack it it's like you should always have your feelings you should never deny them and you should exist in them and you should be curious and open to them but like once they start to have you that's when a lot of i think the and the fear, the anxiety that it becomes too much, it becomes overwhelming is when they start to kind of take control. And the truth is that you have the sort of control that you need. It's in you. Um, but it's about learning how to have that relationship with yourself, I think. And it takes time and it takes therapy. I, when you brought up the river thing, I was like, I had just been thinking kind of <clears throat> of an analogy of how I would define myself and how I like to feel the best about if I'm exercising, if I'm eating fairly well, if I'm sleeping, if I'm doing things that interest me, if I'm reading books, if I'm feeling fill, fueling my head or filling it with uh, less than garbagey type of components, yeah. whether that's, you know, what books or documentaries or something, I feel better. But as far as the feelings aspect, I feel like you are, or at least the way I think about it is, I'm at one, I'm at both times or at the same time, I'm both the castle and I'm also the guard kind of sitting on the fence and the guard on the fence is like you on the bank. I have the ability to see who's coming in, but mm -hmm. I might get a little dozed off or I might get a little complacent and let people come in. I can still rotate at my position and be like, you, how'd you get in here? When I'm operating at the best, I recognize when bad things are trying to come in through the gate. And then I kind of mm. go, not today. When I'm not, and I think how everyone gets, you feel like your castle is filled with dark, assholey, shitty thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And then you you don't want to turn your head and go like, how did you get in here? You just kind of hope, right. like, maybe they'll go away. You don't want to reflect on, like, your... Um, part in mm -hmm. that play yeah. that's something that i learned with some of my friends who like sometimes they don't want it i'm not the friend that they want to come to and it's not because like i'm therapizing with them or anything this is just who i am but it's like 
because they'll be like oh this keeps happening and why does this keep happening and blah, blah blah and then i might be like well you know it sounds to me like and tell me if i'm wrong but what i'm hearing is that like you're choosing to do x y and z <laughs> yeah. because it's you know comforting you in this way or because it's giving you the short-term benefit but in the end it's you know and they're like i don't want to hear that <laughs> you know so <laughs> it's like the, the thing the thing about therapy that's like the hard truth about it you know, and I'm saying this to people who have gone and you're going to be like, uh-huh, I've learned this, you know, and to people who have never gone, get ready for this, is that like your therapist, first of all, is not there to tell you what to do or what to think. They can't, they can't give you insight. Yeah. I wish we could, but we can't. Like how many times does somebody come to a therapist and be like, um, you know, this is happening and I'm being abused or I'm doing it and they're like, leave him. You got to leave him. Why don't you leave him? And they're like, everybody always tells me that. And it's like, yeah, cause you should leave him. And it's like, well, obviously they have to come to that on their own. Cause if they don't come to that on the, and the therapist is, you know, there to like be, um, a an individual who hears them and who you know cares about them unconditionally and who can be non-judgmental and who's like a neutral party um and and all those things and validating and all that good stuff but um so yeah you can't give somebody else insight or judgment you just can't like you can help them in their journey to develop insight and or judgment um uh but also like I think the thing about therapy is that therapists can't solve your problems and they can't change how anybody else in your life is. And I think one of the things that most people want when they go to therapy is they want to change the other people. Yeah. And it's, it takes a while before they realize like, okay, all this stuff sucks. And this is something from working with kids in the foster care system, like in working with kids with really, really severe trauma histories that I had to learn pretty early is that like when we're sitting here and we're having these conversations like we can't do anything about the fact that your mom sucks or we we can't do anything about the fact that you know this caretaker is you know neglectful or this you know we can do things in the sense that we can you know take legal action but here in therapy like we can't change anybody else and so all we can really do is work on how we cope with these things and how we react to these things when they happen Um, There's a really great scene in the Netflix TV show, Unbelievable. Have you seen it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. A limited series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, The, the, God, that is, I mean, if you have a teenage daughter, I highly recommend probably not watching it. Uh, No, yeah. But see, that's that denial thing. You should watch it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's about a girl who's raped, but then you don't know if she actually is or if she isn't because she recants. And it it shows a lot of things about like privilege and power and tension and male-female relations. And there's there's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. But there's a scene where she's talking to a therapist and the therapist is like one of the best portrayals of a therapist that I've ever actually seen because the girl is like really angry. She doesn't actually say anything for a long time. Finally, the therapist does find an in. Um, But one of the big takeaways from that session and pretty much the only takeaway that I think is really salient for her is that like you were hurt and I can't tell you it's never going to happen again. And I can't tell you all the things that you know i'm not going to give you a bunch of tools to help you not get raped again like that's not 
a thing. Yeah. Like we love to think that like, well, well maybe I could do something different. And the next time I wouldn't get raped. Sorry. Oh, man, no, that woman you know, that stands you're up. not at fault. The, the, um, and sorry so, like, to interrupt it, but like, remember the woman that stands up in court and asks him like, what did I do? What yeah. made you pick me? Yeah. A ther- no one's going to answer that. Like the, the guy didn't, but especially a therapist isn't going to be like, here's what you did wrong. Here's how we fix it's, your whole of life. Of course. Yeah. And so it's like, there's no tools that I can give a young girl who's been raped to tell her how not to be raped. That's not what it's about. Like she was assaulted and she was victimized and I can't give her the comfort of knowing it's never going to happen again. Mm-hmm. So all I can really do, especially when, you know, I have vulnerable clients who are more likely to experience these kinds of traumas um, because of sex trafficking or whatever. So all I can do is talk to them about what we do after, Mm -hmm. you know, how do we cope? Well, the coping life look like now, you know, when you think of like if someone were to, I I feel like someone like Jeff Bezos or something like that would be fascinating because we think of them as just like this calculating bloodthirsty shark kind of like life is this. I just have to make money. I just have to maximize my capabilities. I have to always be winning. And and maybe they at some point determine like their philosophy on life that like, maybe it's deeper than we think. Maybe there's a real psychological evaluation of where they were in life and what they thought was valuable but when we see people that just are shark-like mostly we go like they're a psychopath the rest of us are kind of offset is my are my actions are they worthwhile are they harming anyone are they detrimental Mm -hmm. to my family my friends the world at large we're we kind of have these existential feelings of like none of this seems to have any bearing on anything it seems completely meaningless that we are here (laughs) but how do i go through it with a good attitude and like a vision and proceed and try to accomplish things and have a life that when i get to the end of it i go i guess that seemed worth it i don't know if any of this is worth anything but that one seemed fun so there's this great like quote or i don't know i'm not going to quote directly because i can't remember if it was uh hegel or Husserl. so as of right now i'm like mixing up my i will call you out i know those people i can't even my h name existential (laughs) philosopher um but one of them approaches existentialism secularly right because there are some religious existentialists as well like Kierkegaard for example or like Viktor Frankl like yeah. is, is you know Jewish and, and survived the Holocaust He's yeah I read outfits. that at a way too young young of age and it like whew, an answer yeah, for meaning right beautiful book <sighs> yeah really important book so, but, um, so, so and, rough and so of course for, for them the idea of meaning is is about uncovering meaning it's about the fact that there is some sort of intrinsic meaning that is you know spiritually or religiously inscribed and for a lot of people that's their path meaning was placed here by some higher power and their travels through through life are there to uncover it i don't have that view because i'm an atheist um and so i take a more secular approach and and h name philosopher who's or Hegel, i can't remember um said something to the extent of you know the great absurdity of life is that there is no meaning but that doesn't mean that we should be nihilist what it means is that it's our job like artists to create it Mm -hmm. and i think that that's really a striking view that if you want to feel fulfilled and if meaning is something that you're seeking and that's necessary for you which i think it is pretty fundamental to the human condition that it's you know 
imperative that you do what you need to do to create meaning, to figure out what it is in the world that means something to you and to experience it fully, to really breathe it in and to really, you know, um, go like lean into that. Don't be afraid or avoidant of strong feelings Mm -hmm. because I think those strong feelings are a part of that sort of formula that like oneness with the universe or that like depersonalization feeling that people sometimes talk about like these extreme profound and whether we're talking about you know that time when you did a bunch of acid and you remember (laughs) feeling this really like expansive you know whatever or a time when you were out camping under the Milky Way and you kind of lost your sense of self and you felt connected to something and you were sort of in a weird floaty place or whatever that kind of experience is that you're seeking. Um, I think that, you know, it exists, but it exists for you personally and you have to, whether you're religious, you know, or spiritual, uncover it or whether you're more secular, create it. Um, but that that's really what meaning is. It's like an authentic um it's an authentic experience that only you can really have. Yeah. Did you, I, when this first started, when we first kind of were put under uh, isolation, mm-hmm. I, I recommended to the people that listen to this podcast that they read the book, The Plague by Camus. And all this existential talk, I assume you've read that. It seems like something you would have. Yeah, but not recently, to be honest, because a lot of my more recent, like within the past three years, most of my existential readings have been focused on their applications to psychology and psychotherapy. So like most of my core existential stuff was an undergrad because I was, and that was like a long time ago. I got my undergrad in 04. Um, and I studied psychology, but my minor was philosophy. And I mostly focused on political and existential philosophy in my minor. So it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's you, the things you've put into your head are, if you're thinking about a human and how volatile existence can be, you have to have like a pretty big hard drive to be able to add all these applications, books about the very nature of what does this all mean. If you go like the base level of, I'm going to, get my flag and go to the, one of these liberate rallies and I that's my existence. I understand I'm basically a lizard. I understand I need to be working. I'd like mm-hmm. to be working. Everyone's lying to me. I, I don't think beyond that a whole lot. I haven't really thought about the grand concept of the universe. I just know I'm going to this rally, no mask. And then yeah. you go to people beyond that that have read unlimited amounts of books and studied like the meaning behind those books and why and what would inspire the authors to create them and you get a lot of thoughts and ideas put into a head that could lead to a real like combustible situation but largely if you read i imagine one day i'll read your book and on the back book jacket there'll be a picture of you in like a cardigan or something but there will be an unmistakable look in just your general countenance that is like she seems at peace with everything. There's just always this feeling of people like <laughs> Look that. Look at that equanimity. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that comes from that of just, you just get, 
like a stone that gets washed by waves over and over. There's just this polish that you're young and you're fighting against it. And what does it mean? And I'm going to show the world. It's not what I, what everyone says it is. And you're fighting against it. And then slowly the waves just keep washing on you and you don't ever get it fully, but you definitely get like what you just said, like a meaning out of it or what matters to you or what you've gleaned from it in a way where you're like, this makes the most sense. And I just know that I, I probably know very little, but I've settled on, comprehending a a fair amount well and if it's like if you're at peace with yourself i mean i think that's what's so important like we're talking before about these like hippies who go to like meditation class all day and just like drink green juice and wear birkenstocks and i'm like who are you what is your (laughs) life and i'm like so judgmental about them and then i think part of the reason that we judge them so so heavily is because it's like oh man they seem to have something figured out Mm -hmm. and like I don't have what they have. Like, why are they okay wearing tie dye and smelling like patchouli and like being weirdly and out of sync with like normal culture. And I think that it speaks to, so there's this really interesting developmental psychology theory that was put forth by Joan Erickson, who is actually Eric Erickson's, Wife. So Eric Erickson did these, like, I think it was seven different stages of psychology or of development. Um, and he was like a very kind of like classic and um, important developmental psychologist. But a lot of developmental psychologists focus on youth, right? Like you, you want to learn when is identity development happen? When does ego develop? When does whatever? So they're looking at like children and then teenagers and there's all these stages at the beginning and then they're like, and then you're an adult and then you die. Um, <laughs> like they, they kind of like don't subdivide much more than that. And so when Aaron, when Eric got old and then died and was going through some issues with dementia, his wife, Joan, continued some of his work and she started to make some real inferences about what she saw as he was dying. And so she developed this theory that was then um, developed further by this guy named Lars Tornstam called Jero Transcendence. And I've only recently started to read about this and there's something about it that's really appealing to me. It's a hard thing to show evidence, provide evidence for experimentally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like this is what happens in old age. I don't know, but it does seem to, there seem to be some correlations and things like that. There's some clinical scales. So basically the idea of Jero transcendence is that like when you get old, there's certain things that start to happen and there's a whole long list of different, you know, subcategories and sub dimensions. But the ones that to me are the most salient are that you kind of stop giving a fuck. (laughs) Well, I would ask this, do you have the capacity? My grandfather, it seemed like, in some way or another, we're not going to vaporize, but our atoms that make us up are going to cease to all be a team. They are yeah, going to go. Right? They're going to disband. <laughs> They're going to yeah. disband, whether they want to or not. And there's nothing you can do about that. But I feel like as you get older, the brain atoms are the first ones that start being like, I'm heading out. And then just- <laughs> I think it totally depends on the person. <laughs> so one thing that's important that neuroscientists do like to promote, and I think it is important for us to say that they're like dementia is not a normal function of aging like that's a disease state so there are some cognitive decline issues that are normal but they're mild 
mm-hmm. but plenty of elderly people are still very sharp. So if there is a fair amount of dementia, there's probably something structurally and functionally happening in the brain, whether it's a blood flow issue, whether it's, you know, um, an Alzheimer's issue, whether it's based on another disease that's been carried. So yes, you're right. There is, I think, a little bit of age-related cognitive decline that we see with regards to like, why did I come in this room again? Oh yeah, duh, you know, but even that's like happening to me already. Same. Um, I'm really trying to focus on like neuroplasticity. Like, all right, let's not have these behaviors. Let's figure out how to stop that. There's only so much you can do, but yes, it is good to like, just read books. Like, you know, people (laughs) are always like, what do I do? What do I train my brain? I'm like, just think. (laughs) Just don't watch like, shitty tv all day and you'll be fine um like there's no don't do lumosity that doesn't work like there's all these studies that show that like none of these brain exercises like oh i'll do crossword puzzles well you know what that shows like what the outcomes of doing crossword puzzles are that you're really good at doing crossword puzzles right like every study shows that that modality is what it doesn't transfer um so just know stuff and talk to people be active in that way um you'll be fine Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I can't promise you that. <laughs> I like but. that this sort of sage-like advice would just be sort of offhand and just, it read stuff, do your best, try it. Anyway. It's, well, it is. It's like when people are like, how do I stay healthy? It's like, just eat lots of different things. <laughs> it's like such an easy thing. Nobody wants that. Nobody's satisfied with that. They're like, no, I need to cut carbs and I need to do this with the calories and I need to run this many miles. And it's like, just eat a varied diet and don't overdo it with anything. Yeah. Like it is the by far the best advice that any scientist nutrition anybody who studies this stuff is going to tell you eat lots of different things nice be active getting some great advice here yeah and you know what the truth is like you may die tomorrow you may get hit by a car you may succumb to disease you can't fend off certain diseases as much as you might want to you know there's a little bit of variation there's a little bit of epigenetic stuff going on there's you know ways that behaviorally you can maybe stave things off a little longer or you can but if something's gonna come for you it's probably coming for you Mm -hmm. like that's you know that's the unfortunate luck of the draw um but anyway so geotranscendence okay when i say not giving a fuck what i really mean by that is not that they stop giving a fuck about everything it's not that they become like grumpy it's that elderly people who do show this and some never get to a geotranscendent level but you know people like this they start wanting to be more alone which historically therapists and healthcare workers were worried that that pulling away in isolation was like depression or it was a sign of dementia or it was whatever but we're starting to understand that for some it's a very normal and very healthy aspect of aging is that interpersonal stuff other than a few core relationships aren't as important because they don't want to maintain superficiality anymore because they don't have time for it and so the idea is i'm getting closer to death i'm more concerned about what matters so i'm going to stop giving a shit about what i look like yeah and that's why sometimes you'll see like kooky old people who like just dress crazy or they dress oh, like you the can, same sweater every day you can mark me down for that yes it's i'm like on a collision like, course with that fuck <laughs> why am i gonna spend a bunch of money on fashion like i don't care and then like they just stop caring about like 
who is like the new singer or like who's that yeah. person who just had a baby and who's on the tablet they're like i've never heard of any of these people and it's like yeah because they know what's up and we don't like that's why did you ever super- did you get called like a crotchety or curmudgeon or things of that nature at a younger age than expected because i i always kind of had those things i didn't if, if feeling like trying to run kind of lean and like i have no time for that i don't want to know that <laughs> shit you're like oh you're a such little- a curmudgeon you're such an old man like i just have no interest <laughs> I think I've maintained some semblance of balance. Like I'm, you know, I'm all over the place. Like I'm a tomboy, whatever that means, which I don't even like to use that word because I think it's sexist, but like my, you know, gender kind of expressions are all over the place. And yeah, I'm a little bit grumpy, but I'm also like in awe of a lot of things. And I've, you know, like I love shopping, but at the same time, I like try not to do things that are frivolous. And for me, the, the, best way that i could say like who is kara like what's the biggest thing you've grappled with in your life or the biggest kind of identity issue and it's probably very similar for a lot of people is like ambivalence and balance and nuance and gray area it's just like constantly feeling like i'm being pulled between poles and i'm trying to find comfort in in some place that never quite feels resolved and that i feel multiple things about the same thing at once and i'm trying to be okay with that like Mm -hmm these kinds of things that i think actually are the human experience but most of us just ignore or avoid and we're like no i feel <laughs> this way and this way only and i will never change my mind um it's like nah, i don't think that's the best way to be but it's it's a bit uncomfortable living in the in the iterative um but that's kind of how i define myself but yeah i i, I feel like i want to have that kind of jero transcendent experience because it really is like it's defined by giving up superficiality spending more time meditative and alone, spending more time in nature, introspecting more, reading more, sitting and just meditating more. I think it sounds cool. You know, when, uh, I think neither of us are particularly, um, susceptible to joining a cult, but those sort of things are always what appeal to people. And for some reason they always have to do it as a group. Like, hey, when That's you join the thing us. that I don't get. It's like the group meditation I don't get either. I'm like, oh, I don't want to meditate around other people. <laughs> My time. Yeah. Uh, that one I didn't think of. It did, maybe because it was a group, definitely did seem a little more uncomfortable. Everyone was very self-effacing, like, yeah, we're all doing this. But then as we left, like, I couldn't do that again. Because I, I, exp- I didn't feel them or think about them at all when it was happening. And once it That's broke good. up, we just You were able like, to really yeah, turn yeah. inward. If there had I been a lot of, like... There would be, like, if I hear somebody sniffle... Or if I, and then I'm like, oh, fuck you, you know, like, <laughs> why are you like invading my, my thoughts? So I like yeah. get annoyed with my dog sometimes if he like walks across me while I'm meditating, I'm like, lay down, what are you doing? But Jero Transcendence is such a perfect title for like the next bubble off of, are you into Jero? I'm really, <laughs> <laughs> we meet once The funny thing is that. It's sort of like one of those things that by its very nature, I don't even think the people who would be defined by some sort of psychological measure as having Jero transcendence or being in a Jero transcendent life phase would ever identify themselves as such or even know that they <laughs> You're are. You're saying that. I did what now? It would be <laughs> yeah. that. I'd be like, fuck <laughs> off. Get <laughs> the hell out of here. I, don't <laughs> I just want to look at this tree. You know, it's like, okay, sorry. You're not wearing any pants, sir. I don't have time for them. It's like, man, does he have it figured out. So, yeah. There's something, I don't know. There's something I'm kind of looking forward to about 
I like think of you walking through a park and seeing some old man just standing there, maybe just in underwear, and you're like, that guy gets it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) He's the next cult leader right there. (laughs) Oh my gosh, did you watch Waco? Yeah. It was good. It was so good. I, uh... I had to because I I a couple of years ago whenever I've seen the Ted Kaczynski thing mm-hmm. yeah that was like well done and and, uh, and then I don't know but maybe it was more of like a one off thing of the Ruby Ridge and that Ruby was pretty Ridge, good. it was probably the um, American Experience or Frontline episode okay yeah that sounds right and then they talked about how what's his name um uh what's his name the Koresh no they weren't talking about the about Koresh they were Weaver? talking about not Kaczynski um Randy Weaver was that his name the gosh are you talking about the FBI guy or the or the actual uh, no the the guy who blew up the um the McVeigh. building Timothy McVeigh yes yeah McVeigh how he went to to Waco and was selling white supremacy stickers on the out like he had a van and he was like selling like Whoa. white supremacy swag on the outskirts of Waco that Ruby Ridge radicalized a lot of people and yeah. then Waco like ultra radicalized a they lot didn't of show that in the series which I was surprised I by that like there's this they Bill didn't show Hicks any video. of the cultural fallout no Th- that line down that road would be like a mile long of campers mm-hmm. and RVs and people up on top of them with flags and binoculars like big signs saying we're behind you David yeah, I think their choice with Waco, which I actually really appreciated, because it was based on two books. It was based on a book by a guy that lived right. to tell the tale, like a guy who was actually a Thibodeau. Yeah. And then it was, yeah, Thibodeau. And then it was also based on the book by the FBI and negotiator who basically got overrun and yeah. was trying to do everything the right way. And then basically they said, no, we'll just gas them. Um, <laughs> and so. I think that because it was based on those perspectives, what they were trying to do with the with the series was humanize everybody. I thought they did a great job of that. I Even correct. Like, none of them seemed like folksy, like idiotic cult member. Like usually the way that you think of cult members, these like fundamentalists as being portrayed. Like David Crash seemed like a totally, I mean, a little kooky, sure, but yeah. like kind of a cool, nice guy. Like I might have been friends with him. Did that? I would love to know if that rock scene where they just blare out him kicking out the jams. Remember when they? Yeah, like, did that actually happen? I would love to know that because if that happened, that Probably. is pretty great. Did Koresh? I'm googling it. Did Koresh play music for the FBI? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the FBI was there by then, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was pretty deep into it. That was when they were trying, like, the psychological torture. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Do, 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 do. The real Koresh was a musician. He did meet Thibodeau through music, but at a guitar center, not at a gig. Um, they did have a band. He did have a band. Um, the noise was constant. Uh, but they're differing accounts as to his musical retaliation. Guitar music, some people said the guitar music did blare from the compound, and then other people said that it was actually Koresh playing, but they don't really know if it was. Oh, that's all I need to. Playing music or actually playing music. <laughs> I'm going to you know? lean on, I'm going to go with the version I want in that case. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I don't know. I was like pretty impressed by it. Like it definitely made me feel feels for them and i thought that that was a really cool approach because i think that 
more and more more my hope is that more and more as a society we're moving into attempting to understand motivations and emotional states behind tragedies mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to just play the like bad or evil card which to me like doesn't make like we're in a modern society like people right. don't do things because they're evil yeah like people do things because they're desperate or they do whatever and then of course i think that it also is a vindication of Waco that like yeah okay like it's probably not good to have these like potential weapons charges like they were stockpiling weapons yeah. so and like, he what married are... like a 12 year old so yeah and he was yeah a pedophile and like there was some real radicalization that was happening there like anti-government sentiment and you know armed militia scariness yeah and you know like I'm talking to God like that whole I'm a prophet thing that usually doesn't end well yeah but ultimately they were murdered by the FBI like, and that's yeah. a very clear and important message. Well, you and like, as a Texan, too. I mean, I'm from the West, and I remember that convoluted kind of weird message that, yeah, the government messed it up, but they set themselves on fire. That was kind of the, the message mm-hmm. that leaked out, that until this documentary, I was kind of roaming around thinking, like, yeah, and then Caress just didn't want to go out, so he, you know, they all burned themselves in there. And now watching this, and they did play it down the middle, like, you know, but you clearly see, like, oh, well, one, they should have walked out when they had the chance. That was, that's on them. But two, they should not have been burned to the ground. Well, the thing is, like, Waco documentaries talk about it as well, like, this idea that the gas that they used is highly flammable. Mm -hmm. And they've known that because they've used it multiple times and they're always were fires <laughs> and it's like okay it's a pretty bad risk here so and also whether that it had ended with that burning or not the kids suffocated like the kids mm-hmm. died and they knew the kids didn't have gas masks and yeah. they gassed them anyway and i mean it was tragic because they thought they were all going to get out they didn't realize that they were trapped inside but i mean well you now armed with this sort of you know more concrete sort of um, historical knowledge of that sort of thing plus like you were talking about as a, as a therapist looking at the psychology mm-hmm. of you'll see this a lot with um, people will say terms regarding like the president of like well hurt people hurt people that's why he's always lashing out he he doesn't process things well and the, the more criticism he takes he lacks the ability or the empathy to do you reason think that that's what hurt people hurt people means or do you think it's more that people who suffer severe trauma and who don't cope with their severe trauma oftentimes will enact that trauma later in life because these are the coping mechanisms that they so people who have like really poor attachment styles because they were neglected as children or they weren't comforted or soothed when they needed to be won't develop the interpersonal skills or the empathy or the you know capability to do that or i shouldn't say won't but it might be negatively impacted and it might lead to personality disorders or things like that down the road so yeah maybe donald trump suffered severe early childhood trauma that led to him having and like armchair diagnosis here i always say you shouldn't do that but he's classic narcissistic personality disorder and i think everybody knows that at this point um i mean maybe sure that that is kind of a cyclical thing but Mm -hmm. ultimately i think narcissism drives a lot of the decisions that he makes that makes good sense i'm thinking he's a classic narcissist like if it's not if it's not about him it's against him right yeah, that people didn't praise us for not talking to them kind of a, uh, oh, oh, I like him. Yeah, he said nice things about me. That's kind of all it takes. You hear those sort of uh, sentences being said a lot. Oh, yeah, I like him. He had very good things to say about me. Like, oh, that's why you like uh, him. 
Yeah. But going back like, on the on the historical scale versus and like that coupled with some level of empathy, like on one hand you go to the Weaver story and then immediately after that Waco and now when you see people storming state capitals heavily armed and everyone going, Why are they not doing anything? You could trace that directly to like they got some bad PR and they have not forgotten about it, the government that is, in that these things need to be de-escalated quietly and peacefully and everyone's just kind of standing there ignoring them to a certain extent and they have largely gone away in a way that maybe tests those boundaries of like, ooh, I'd love to see the government push back a bit there. Some people that are angry about it say that. But I, th- I see other people too when they see these photographs being like, look at the, look how scared these people are. They're cruising yeah. around with like bazookas and stuff. They're just little kids that are scared like is that what you're kind of referring to as a society where we get more empathetic and we see these things that could cause us great fear oh my god there's a person with a rocket launcher on their arm but instead we see kind of that's a shame you didn't get a lot of hugs as a kid i mean i hope so unfortunately i don't know if it's as widespread as as i would like it to be but i think you saw that transition in like for example the the mind hunter series i think they do a good job of showing that change in mentality at the highest levels of the FBI when they're first starting to study and and actually coin the term serial killer. And they're like, no, we need to understand why they became this way. And they're like, they're just bad. We're not going to study them because if we study them, we're basically saying it's okay to be that. Like, there's this weird thing about like, if I can listen to you and if I can empathize with you that I'm somehow telling you that what you did was okay and that that's those two things can exist at the same time like you can think that somebody did something wrong but still be empathetic for them as a person and try to understand why they found themselves in that position Um, and that's what we have to do as therapists if we're working with offenders right because we have to have unconditional positive regard and a a lack of judgment because it's it's my client whether it's a pedophile or a murderer but like I I have to work with this person you know and I can't hate them right and even if you did go into it that way I mean time and again and this is such a different coupling but you take like one of the people we brought up early in our conversation of like I'm a congressperson and I am very anti-LGBTQ and then cut Mm -hmm. to all right I came out of that hotel yes I had a relation with that person and yet like they're that person is that thing but then on the other if, if someone say they are not uh closetedly gay but they hate gay people mm-hmm. now they're stuck in a rowboat and they've got to live for three days with limited nutrient they will likely come out of that friends for life assuming yeah. neither of them is a murderer yeah and but the- they'll do the thing that a lot of people do this is a psychological trick they play where they like it's the same thing with like racist people who have black friends because they'll be like i can't be oh, racist right. i have a black friend yeah. and it's like no you see that person as the exception mm-hmm and that's probably what would happen if they were in the rowboat, too. I think it takes more than one example. It takes really being surrounded by people who aren't like you and experiencing a lot of different worldviews. But it also takes a lot of self-work and introspection and actually a desire to better yourself to like move away from bigotry and so for a lot of people it's an awakening like people who were raised a certain way and then find themselves to be much more progressive later it's like an awakening that happens after multiple different you know life events and and experiences and a lot of times a lot of reading and a lot of watching documentaries and a lot of 
thinking and, and listening to themselves. I know, you know like I'm, when I was doing material that was a little bit more critical of uh, fire and brimstone type biblical things, mm-hmm. the majority of people who would come over and talk to me afterward were people who had grown up with extraordinarily restrictive kind of upbringings that way and had, however they viewed it as taking off the, the blinders or what have you and felt very like fortunate and or just uh, sometimes like a superiority feeling because of that. Like, look yeah, what I think I that, that sometimes the pendulum swings before it levels out a little. So a lot of people, when they first leave religion, there there's like anger mm-hmm. and maybe like a haughtiness and like a yeah. And then eventually, and eventually, people hopefully find themselves back in the middle where there's a little bit more humility and they're starting to empathize again with the the people that are still on the other side of that fence. Yeah, you know, and and maybe the anger has subsided, but a lot of times it's because there's trauma there. It's like they've experienced, you know, whatever they want to consider, you know, whether they want to call it child abuse if it's really extreme all the way just to like mild um brainwashing or you know whatever the case may be um and sometimes it's not even that bad you know you it's a relatively moderate religion that's not you know trying to have you not think for yourself and it allows you a lot of freedoms and you just realize it's not for me but i think oftentimes the people that maybe you're referring to are people who grew up in like a really evangelical very fundamentalist kind of thing and they're pissed about it once they kind of quote unquote see the light Mm -hmm. and then it takes time before they start to realize like oh well all those other people are in the exact same place i used to be and like maybe look at them like they're human beings but I, I there's a really interesting study that um that came out i think several years ago now because i remember citing it on sgu um where these researchers defined or coined this construct that they called belief in pure evil vpe mm-hmm. um and you know they they developed some sort of metric to test how strong people's beliefs beliefs are in pure evil and you know and so they gave them like a survey and and based on their answers to the survey they could rate them as they really believe in evil or they don't believe in evil at all or they're somewhere in the middle and then they took the same people and they asked them a lot of kind of civic related questions and they found all these really interesting correlations like people who believe in pure evil are more likely to support the death penalty. They're less likely to support rehabilitation efforts for offenders. And so it starts to kind of show you some of these worldview things where if you think that somebody is just bad or rotten or Mm -hmm. possessed by the devil or whatever, you know, the sources for that, what is the point of helping them? They're always going to be bad or rotten. And I think that this contributes to race related views, sexist related views, you know, any sort of real bigotry. And it also contributes to some of the real problems that we see in our criminal justice system, because it's in many ways built upon an infrastructure of people saying you're bad you need to pay for how bad you are instead of saying what got you to this place in your life and what can we do to try and make it so that you don't have to ever go to that place again I have you watched we've brought up a number of Netflix shows maybe I should <laughs> start yeah well a podcast it's COVID soon. times baby that's all we're doing it's just like binging on Netflix I know uh, have you seen I'm a Killer I think Which you would really that? enjoy that. It's oh, that's death the row series people. where it's like individual people. Yeah, and they tell their story, and it always Are they good. 
I've, I, I think tried you to would watch be, one and then I was like, I don't know if I'm into this. Some are better than others. It varies. Okay. But, you know, typically yeah. they'll, it'll be a person telling a story. I came in, I saw this. I was just helping. I just drove. And then I, suddenly I was holding the hammer, but I didn't use it. Uh, blah, 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 blah. And then it'll cut to... A def- like a the DA from the time or someone like that being like that's the story they're still sticking with that's crazy hit yeah. that guy 50 <laughs> times with a hammer we had blood spatter we had all this evidence we knew he did it but yeah. then it'll go to the third act which is that person's upbringing their history whether they were sexually abused what might have triggered it there's always some level of empathy whereas you're watching it your views kind of change a, a few times on, on the best ones the ones that are not you're like nah fuck this person but yeah exactly but yeah. some of them you go oh my I, that's embarrassing as a society we chose to lock up this person i know the crime they committed is pretty rough but their upbringing their childhood the situation that led them, them to that is outrageous that we let them slip through the cracks that way and when you really start to look at recidivism and you really start to look at you know the way that our prison our for-profit prison systems are structured you start to under and you start to dig deep into the racial components of this like i just recently finished reading uh, michelle alexander's the the uh what's it called the new jim crow um uh which is all about mass incarceration and how fucking racist the system really is and how many young black men spend their lives behind bars. They're already basically sentenced from the time they're young. Mm -hmm. um, And then it's just a cycle where they can't get out. Um, And it really does make you wonder if our entire justice system is not predicated on rehabilitation and reform because it's actually you're more likely to go to prison because you've been to prison. Like it has so much less to do with the crime that you committed. Like we make criminals in prison. Going back to sex offenders and so often when a really heinous crime happens and they've catch the person, they go, Oh, they serve six months or two years for this. (laughs) And you're like, well, that recidivism is infuriating. We're like there to me, there are certain crimes where like, can we guarantee some level of objective rehabilitation you know if you're talking to these it's people it's hard to with sex offenders it's like one of those things where i mean some of them yes i can get treatment especially the ones where it's like a ptsd post-trauma they were brutalized as children this is the only way they know how to enact with other people and they start to get real healing for the stuff that they went through as kids but for like you know some people who are, have like these pedophilic tendencies or these really violent criminal tendencies because they hate women or because they whatever like yeah it's like the thing about psychotherapy here's the dirty truth of it it doesn't work unless you want it to Mm -hmm. you have to want to get better or to affect change and if you're not interested in that then you know what is there to do and so you're right like that that is really worrisome and i think a lot of it has to do again with like insight with like a level of understanding with humanity you know, mm-hmm. Does this person have much humanity? Have they been treated humanely? Have you seen? Okay, other documentary. <laughs> um, so I'm obsessed with PBS. So I see, I watch everything on PBS all the time. I like unlocked everything because I paid for PBS passport and I got myself a cool tote bag because like I'm Whoa. a rich white lady. Congratulations. So that's what white liberals do is they get <laughs> PBS and NPR tote bags. Um, but so I, um, there's a, brilliant Ken Burns documentary. I actually think he's a producer on it. He didn't direct it, but it's called Prison Behind Bars. Okay. And it's about the Bard Prison Initiative, which is 
an actual a university an accredited you know degree granting university that just happens to not happens to i mean they worked hard to do this but who has a campus within new york prisons and this has it used to be very common then it became really uncommon i think during like the reagan administration and then slowly but surely we're starting to see it like ramp up a little bit but like seeing these young men who most of which are black and brown who you know some of them are in prison for life for murder as you know teenage boys or you know young adults and some of them have drug charges and they're going to get out but seeing them dedicating themselves to education and the insights and the um just the brilliance like they're college students like you would never when like you, you get to eavesdrop on some of their like philosophy classes and their literature classes when they're reading like you know greek classics and stuff and you're like my classes were not like that nobody was <laughs> saying profound shit like that when i was an undergrad because undergrads are 18 to 22 and are often not always but often from a privileged class and yeah. so seeing these kids who could marry the academic Pandemic insights, you know, from the from the Greek philosophers or the legal scholar, whatever it was that they were studying, to their real life experience growing up in an underprivileged class. I mean, it's like it's brilliant. And then of course it's great to see that some of them who get out actually have a chance at something because we fuck over our our um offender population like yeah. people who have been to prison especially if they have a felony charge which is often the case even for minor drug offenses like they can't keep housing they can't go to school they can't keep jobs they can't we make it so that they're doomed to fail we do not help them we make it we put up a thousand roadblocks for them yeah, if you think it's tough to come out of a, a really oppressive religious upbringing Imagine, you know, being raised in a way where like the concept of maybe going to college or any kind of secondary school is pretty foreign. You see everyone Not around just foreign, you. but like, but like, like wussy, you know <laughs> right, what I mean? Yeah. Like, cause there, that is like a, a mentality. Like if you see, you know, like probably for a lot of people, the closest they've ever seen it was watching the wire and seeing like the corner kids in Baltimore. Like, yeah. it's not just that these kids don't think college is for them. It's that they're like, only pussies go to college. Like, what are you talking about? I'm not like that. Mm -hmm. It's like the mentality is that you earn your respect in the game. Yeah. And that's the only way you're going to make money. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite things of... Uh I tell this all the time because it <laughs> makes me feel like a real hero, but I used to sub and I'd get, because I had an engineering degree, I'd get math assignments all the time, especially mm -hmm. junior high. Every junior high teacher calls out way more during the year than they are like, allowed to because <laughs> it's so miserable. You just have all these hormones and it's just the worst group, worst crop of kids. You're in between, right? You're in between the like almost adult pissy kids that are like, like, but still coming into their own and the kids who are like, cause my mom was a middle school teacher. So is, is that what you mean by junior high? Like six through. Yeah. Like yeah. Grade? Like six, seven, eight yeah. or just seven, eight, seven, like. eight. Yeah. And, and, but you're in between this place where they're like almost adults, but they're also still for some reason, always sick. <laughs> and so they're still like snot nosed kids. So my mom was just always sick. Cause the kids were all, they're just like buckets of disease. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> but they, I was, you know, in like pretty close to some, some rough areas in San Diego especially Austin like I thought it was going to be better and there were some pretty like um, 
rough areas, but near uh, like Chula Vista area in, and just the further south you go and east, they're just little pockets in San Diego where a lot of heavy gang activity. I saw mm-hmm. 12, 13 year old kids with like fully tattooed arms. That's a weird yeah. age to have just covered in gang tattoos. Um, but whenever I would be teaching the math and they were like not paying attention, I would just always pose it to them in the way of like being in the game. Like, I'm going to sell yeah. you three rims for X amount, and I'll sell you the fourth for this amount, or I'll give you all four for this amount, which is a better deal. They'd be dramatically different deals. And so that's they, what Prez Belusky did on The Wire. <laughs> it's when he, he's, like, trying to talk about apples, and he's like, yeah. if you have five apples in a basket, and then they're all like, what are you talking about? And then one kid turns around to the other kid, and he's like, so... He wants a team and he's only got five and he's blah, blah, blah. And then so-and-so skims some off the top and he's like, oh, and he tells him exactly how much money is. You're like, how did you do that? It's real. I think we have to change it that way to make, uh, make learning more fun. And I wish that same principle we could apply to like kids wanting to do it. How could we, you know, people get real rigid as they get older. So having that same enthusiasm for being open-minded to changing your preconceived things like to hear some to hear you talking about recidivism and or incarceration and changing it some people inherently especially if you know a crime was committed against someone in their Mm -hmm. immediate family are really like "Uh uh-uh my mind's made up and we aren't changing anything so how Mm -hmm. do we get people to at least just vaguely entertain the notion of empathy and at least you know, for a moment, just wondering what it would be like to be that other person. Well, I think our society has to change. Like this is bigger than just like something you can teach somebody. Right. And so a lot of it starts when you're young, it starts within your family unit. It starts with early exposure to empathic interaction. Um, You know, if you're raised by bigots, you're very likely going to become a bigot unless you rebel against that bigotry. But even then, it's probably because you've been exposed early on to readings or to, you know, literature, film, television, or a teacher or a neighbor who was pretty open-minded and empathic. Um, But beyond that, I think part of the argument that I hear a lot against like college and prison or against, you know, social programs and social services is this very kind of individualistic manifest destiny argument of like, why should we give a criminal something for free that I can't even afford? And there's a part of me that that thinks that it's because our society is so broken that these views persist. Like if we lived in a society where the weakest among us were taken care of, where you could go to college for free, it wouldn't feel as much as much of an affront if somebody who has been, you know, um, convicted of a crime to have the opportunity to get an education. But because so many people in our country struggle so hard for so little, you know, because our social services are shit, um, and weirdly, it's that same rhetoric that keeps the status quo. It's this like anti-European, anti-communist, anti-socialist rhetoric. But the sad thing is, if we actually had better social safety nets in our country, if we had universal health care, if we had you know free education, if we had universal basic income, some of these like fundamental things that we see in most developed Western societies, I think there would be less anger against the weakest among us having access to things that even some, you know, 
lower middle class people don't have access to. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see it where we, you know, it's like, I think we as a nation only are as good as the weakest among us. And I do think that, um, but, you know, people like to say that like a rising tide raises all boats, but that's kind of not true. Like we have to actively raise the lower kind of class to get to that place. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to see those kinds of changes occur because they feel like it's, it's an assault to them personally. Yeah. There's so much. Well, I, I know when we were jokingly uh, talking about <clears throat> recording, we we're like, we got to solve all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this is why Donald Trump is effective, right? Like, this is why there is this like dog whistle, MAGA hat wearing. Like, it's easy for us to like discount this, but there is a, an unrest in our country of like white, lower, to middle class individuals who have lost their manufacturing jobs, who have like are losing jobs to automation on a regular basis and who are taking and this is not a new situation. This has been happening throughout the Industrial Revolution. Anytime there's an advancement where people who are doing kind of lower skilled labor are losing their niche within that technological kind of um, milieu, they are able to scapegoat black and brown people and say that it's because of the, you know, heterogeneity of the country that this is happening. And it's an unfortunate truth that Donald Trump is like tapped into that unrest of basically poor white America. And they're saying like, you're losing your niche and you're losing your power because if there was anything that they still had, even if they didn't have money or status, it was white power. And, you know, in an egalitarian society and in a a society that I want to live in where obviously, you know, affirmative action is, is strong and it's doing what it set out to do. And we start to rebound, you know, I want to live in a society that pays reparations. I want to live in a society where like, we're like, we, we are honest with ourselves about the things we've horribly done wrong in the past genocide against indigenous populations and slavery. And, you know, and I want to do something about it so that we're not just destined to repeat this problem. Um, but the issue is that a lot of people have the mentality of like, I'm poor, I struggle too. Your pain is the same as my pain. You can't tell me that your pain is is more important than my pain. And how dare you get something that I should be getting? Mm-hmm. And that's a very American view. And when you can tap into that and you can stoke it and you can dog whistle the racial component and the misogynistic component in a heavy way, you can appeal to somebody's sense that they're losing power and losing control through fear you're going to be effective it's unfortunate but you're going to be effective and to you that you signaled that you have an answer to it that like these parameters put in place equal things working out for you You, they they were great you 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 know when your previous job even if that person's like well never actually made that much money I've always had a really difficult time and a hard-ass job. I just want that job back. Oh, I, I got it. Here's the problem. Yeah. And this idea, too, that, like, I think I think they are holding on to an idea that the playing field has always been level for everybody. And in America, if you just work hard enough, you'll be okay. And you'll even, you know, succeed. And so because of that kind of rhetoric, it, there's this weird disconnect where, 
the promises made are to the lower class, but then the actual payoffs are made to, you know, the elite class. And so it's this, but strangely, the lower class continue to vote for these, you know, we always talk about voting against your interests. And, and the idea, I think, is because ultimately there's a fantasy that those will one day be my interests. Yeah. And it, the sad truth is that the same systems that are preventing black and brown people in this country from social mobility and that make it so that they are the most hit by COVID-19, that make it so that they have the highest infant mortality rate. You know, all of the markers of a lack of social mobility and inequality are hitting, you know, poor whites as well, not as hard because they still have the privilege of white skin and that really does pay dividends. But ultimately, they're still finding themselves in these same um, socioeconomic niches and not understanding that the policies that build up the elite class are hurting them. <laughs> same as they're hurting the black and brown people. Like, like if you actually took a more liberal or progressive stance, you would personally benefit from it because you're in the class that needs that kind of help. It's the rich people. I get why rich people are anti-progressive. Yeah. You know, I get why rich people want to maintain a conservative status quo. But what I don't get, I mean, I get because of the dog whistle and because of the rhetoric and because of the narrative, I get why it works. But if you really start to unpack it, it's sad to me that there is kind of a pull on so many hardworking, working class people who probably would benefit more from a, um, you know, like a moderate progressive Robert Reich kind of point of view. Yeah, if you haven't seen uh, Inequality for All... Oh, it's so good. It's We're documentary nerds, aren't we? <laughs> we really are. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's so good. And my favorite part is when they talk to that really rich guy and he's trying to explain how trickle-down economics doesn't work. Yeah. And he's like, I'm really rich. I make a hundred times more money than you. But when I buy a car, or you know, my car pants. might be he's more like, expensive than your car. I can only get a couple pairs of pants. Yeah. yeah, but he was like, I don't buy a hundred more cars than you do. Like, <laughs> I can only have two pillows to sleep on. Yeah. I don't need a hundred pillows. This is why <laughs> I rich think people aren't giving back to the economy the same. The guy, when they go to that factory, and some people get up and leave. They hear who's speaking to them, and they're like, I'm out. And then mm -hmm. there's a guy that's just so, like, he's not interested. He's got his legs crossed, his arms crossed, he's slouched in his chair, and Robert Reich gets on stage, and it's like, the guy is just daggering him with his eyes and he goes you seem like you're not into this he goes, ah. he goes let me just break down for you how corporate wages have gone and profits have gone and workers wages have gone since the 70s and the guy goes well, i didn't go to college i don't deserve to make more money and that, <gasps> <laughs> and i just remember thinking like Oh, there's like there's an awareness coupled with this. Yeah, it's like weird, a self-loathing yeah. thing, it's and that like, had never occurred to me that there are but, people like I, I didn't. But try it also makes school. sense, right? Like my kid brother is gay, but he was raised Mormon, and so there was a long period for him where he like hated himself for being gay and had to like learn to get past that. And I think you see it a lot. Like you see women 
making sexist remarks. And it's not because women are fundamentally sexist. It's because sexism is so entrenched in society that like even we can't escape it. You'd see it with black and brown people as well, having internalized racist views about themselves because it's so entrenched and it, it, it does. It affects everybody in that way, which is super, super sad. Okay. Can I tell you my quick Robert Reich story? Sure. Yeah. Okay, so I'm in Berkeley filming for a TV show. I think it was a, like two years ago now, maybe three. I was filming for Explorer on Nat Geo. Um, and I'm like, why am I in Berkeley? I think there's a, no, we were going to Impossible Burger and then also something else in the Silicon Valley area and then something else like at Berkeley. So we were just like making the rounds in NorCal. Anyway, we're staying at this weird like old school hotel and... It's um, the State of the Union address that Trump is making. It's one of his first ones. And it's the one, I don't know if you remember what, where he's talking about like the white savior who like, who like adopts the heroin at the black heroin addicts, like baby. It's like a really gross story. And he's talking about this like family who came and saved her baby. And like, it's, ugh, it's <laughs> I bad. I don't think I and saw I'm that. Enraged. We're, we're all finished filming and we're in the like, you know, van with all our gear and we're driving back to the hotel and we're like oh state of the union let's turn it on and then we're just like seething by the time we get to the hotel and there's flames coming out of our ears i'm like oh i feel sick to my stomach and i walk in my hotel and robert reich is standing in the lobby nice actually he's like he like opens the door like i'm coming in and he like pulls the door for me and i kind of stop because i don't i'm like is that him and then i'm like of course it's him he's like tiny and he can tell i'm man. just staring at him and he goes, hi, I'm Bob. Nice. And I go, I'm Kara. And then I go to my room and I was like, what happened? And then like, after I clean up, I'm going to walk to the noodle place around the corner for dinner and he's still in the lobby. And so I'm like, at that point, more composed. I'm like, sorry, I didn't know what to say before. I was kind of like in a bad place because we had just listened to the state of the union. And I just want to tell you that like, you give me hope that there's still like rational sane people in the world. Like actually I was in a, not a good place and seeing you helped bring <laughs> me out of that. And he was like, wow, that's good to hear. You know, we're all in this together. Like we'll get through it. And I was like, thanks man. And then I tweeted something about the fact that I just met Robert Reich and it was really, you know, amazing, especially after state of the union. And then he like tweeted back to yeah. me. <laughs> and I was like, proof. He was like, nice to meet you too. <laughs> <laughs> digital proof for a physical real interaction in human life it's like funny because i could you know i've dated a few people and been a few places in my life and done a few tv shows and met a lot of like very famous people i could like name drop a lot of people and talk about parties and talk about whatever but like i don't give a shit about any of that <laughs> but it's like i met robert reich in berkeley it was amazing i would feel if i met noam chomsky i think i would really have a hard time coming up with things to say. Yeah. I very few people that way. But those two guys are like, there's this dude, I, I really want to pair up Robert Reich and this guy, Paul Tudor Jones. Are you familiar with him? I don't think I know him. He's a billionaire and he's an ultra capitalist and he's on the very other side of the spectrum. And yet his view of corporate profits versus workers wages since the seventies are exactly the same as Robert Reich's. I, I'm assuming they would have very different goals as to how to uh solve it but he put out a thing to a bunch of fortune 500 companies a few years ago and i don't think it has taken off it's somewhat similar to like i think a number of things have tried this sort of seal like um i'm forgetting the name it's like the good seal or something like that but they polled the general public what's important mm -hmm. to you you know how you treat your 
uh, employees? You know, what sort of maternity leave do you have? Are you good to the environment? Do you, et cetera, et cetera. What are important things? And they rank those 10 and then they put out a list to the biggest companies in the world and said like, here's where you ranked on this list based on the data we have, based on how you treat, be better. And if you get into like this percentage, we'll put a stamp on your company. Mm-hmm. I love that there's something proactive in that. I don't think it's had any impact on the sort of cutthroat ravenous nature of our system as it currently is. But I think the two of those guys together could potentially wake people up. You know, I think I bet they, you could, they know each other. You think they've ever like debated or anything? I don't know. I'd be all, I guess I should Google and see if they have. Cause that would, uh, th- there'd be something compelling about it that, you know, they, they represent two very different worlds and yet the similarities are fascinating to me. Have you ever, so, you know, we live in LA, which means that like we live in this weird place where you'll be like in line for a burrito and then you're like, (laughs) is that guy in a diarrhea commercial? Like you just run into like famous people all the time in LA because they all live here. Um, Have you ever had some sort of interaction where you met somebody and you were like, because usually it's like, whatever, they're just people I don't care. But like, have you ever met like a politician or like a a thinker or, or even just like an, just like an actor (laughs) or even, or a comedian or somebody who you really respect and look up to where you're like, wow, that was so cool. And then they were like awesome on top of that. I briefly interacted with Eddie Murphy and he was real cool. And then, um, sounds pretty cool. I mean, it was like two sentences, but yeah, he was real like, real sweet about it and that and i was i didn't feel any level of nerves i i i think i would be embarrassed if i got nervous seeing someone however uh, so this is a story that you and i have talked about we probably met at a taping at um and i can cut this if you want but um at bill maher and Mm -hmm. neil degrasse tyson's on the show and Years later when we, we met, met there? No, but you and I have talked about this since. We were like, well, there's a 95% chance we were in the same room. And well, yeah, then, if you went there, then... And you I mean, were probably I don't there. know. Neil's been on the show a bunch of times, but yeah. I, I and this would to... have been like 2011-ish or something. And I got nervous talking to Neil, not because, you know, he's a, a person that I knew of and it was like kind of, you know, very famous, but that I had something I wanted to ask him and I get Uh real nervous in those situations. If we were just hanging out like, oh, hey man. But the people, like when I was doing a podcast with other people, they were like, we got to get this guy on the show. And so then I tell my in at that party who was one of the writers, like, I, this is dumb, but I would really kick myself if I didn't in some way try. And he goes, go do it, man. Go for well, it. This is when you were doing Professor Blast. Yeah. And yeah, so, so it's a science show. You got to get the science guy on the yeah, show. And like, yeah. And he was just starting to become pretty ubiquitous and, yeah. on the shows and stuff. And so I thought, like, what a great guy to get. And then he was such a, like, a magnanimous sort of figure in that. He was walking out, and I walked over and was like, kind of babbling like an idiot, like, um, I have a quote, my friends and I do a podcast. And then he goes, Walk with me. And then yeah. he puts, this giant man puts his arm around me. I think he was wearing like a long coat, almost like a train. He felt like it was almost like a cape, walking along with his arm around me. And then we burst through these doors. And he, there's a limousine waiting, and we're on like the edge of a loading dock kind of thing, uh-huh. the back, you know, soundstage thing. So the, we're above the limousine, but we're looking down at it with the door open. It's clearly waiting for him. Burst through this door with his uncaped arm, like the, not the one that's around me, but the other one sweeps it open and goes, "Behold, Venus!" And he's just like, 
it's just there in the distance and then i was like wow that's pretty good and then he goes email this thing it's my assistant i'll get in touch with you and then he whisked away into the limousine and i was like i don't think i was great in that interaction but he was phenomenal Here's the thing about Neil, though, and because Neil and I have been friends for a long time. Neil's been, you know, a very, like, good mentor to me over the years. We don't talk as much now. He's very, very famous. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not. So. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really hang out much anymore. But um, he is the kind of person who is the only person in the room when he's in the room. And so I think everybody feels that way when they have an interaction with Neil, because he talks 10 times louder than everybody else. He, his voice is dominant. It's booming. He's the one with the idea. So he's going to tell it to you and you'll be like, Oh, I can add to that. I have something else to say. You're like, okay, Neil still got the floor. So I think everybody kind of feels like, did what just happened? Like, (laughs) did he hear anything I said? Because he's just got such a big personality. So unless you're really one-on-one with him, but even even when I, the way he is in interviews, as you know, that's who he is. Mm-hmm. Like he's not quieter and meeker in person. <laughs> like that's not how he is. So there is that. But I definitely like I, I've thought about before, you know, if there were people that I could have met, like Oliver Sacks was my, you know, probably oh, my yeah. biggest influence in my academic career. And of course he died recently, so I never had the chance to meet him. I was on an episode of Star Talk, Neil's show, that a previously taped interview of Oliver Sacks was also on. So in a way I felt like I kind of met him. We were both on the same show. (laughs) Um, I've read, uh, I just read like a year or two ago, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's the one. Such a beautiful. I mean, they're all amazing, but that's the one I always tell people to start with because it'll it'll get you. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's so good. Um, But then recently I had the opportunity at Nexus last year, which is the new England conference on science and skepticism to, interview because we we tried to get a person as a keynote and she we couldn't afford her but she agreed to do it if it was more like a QA because it's obviously less you know less prep you don't have to get up with the powerpoint stuff i can just sit and talk so i was in the lucky position to sit down with mary roach and interview oh, her nice i know she's like my favorite living science writer and i was nervous at first but she's amazing and that made it a lot easier so we just got to hang out and I, but I did, I, she seems like she would be like, she writes like just kind of laid back and cool and sort of funny. Totally laid back a little bit more, um, humble than you'd think she would be with her writing. Cause her writing is a little bit, um, like, I don't know. It's, it's bold. Um, yeah. And she's, so she's assertive a little, with it. she's a little less kind of, um, I don't know. Humble is the right word. Like she's kind of a little bit self-deprecating and self-effacing cool. and yeah. Um, but so fun. And I'd be telling her all this stuff. Oh, in this one book you said, and she's like, I don't remember that. <laughs> like I wrote that. I don't know. <laughs> oh my God, I, love you. <laughs> I like the musicians have to sing their songs over and over. So there's very little chance that they're going to get which one, but virtually everyone else, you know, this thing you said on this podcast, you know, this thing you wrote, like, Oh, I hate that. It's just a river that exists behind most people. Like very few an remember email from somebody on SGU this happens all the time people write in and they're like when you said this and you're like I don't think that that doesn't sound like me so I got an email from a guy who's like I just wanted to take you know be a little pedantic about um about a few episodes in a few episodes Kara mentioned that cheese is the worst thing you could eat for the environment I'm like I'm pretty sure I would have said beef (laughs) cheese and so I had to write it back and be like I don't believe you that I said that can you like give me a timestamp or something because I have no idea what I would have been smoking 
I don't know, man. But I don't remember. Good for you to stand up for it, though. That'd be weird to just go, I hate, sorry. Yeah, I guess yeah. I don't, I'd have to hear it in context. Or I would always get stuff early on in the podcast days of uh, you start a thought, and especially when there's three people and it goes around. And I would always say the equivalent of it was this, is that you go, you know, a lot of people are pretty hard on Hitler. And then you get, <laughs> you get interrupted and you're like, and then you never get back to it. And people go, you know, that thing you said. And you're like, no, I was going to finish it with, he was even worse. I was going to say he was even, oh boy. You know, you would get, just piled on for his thought you didn't finish my my favorite example of that was the first time i was ever on television i was barely 24 i think just out of my master's degree trying to figure out what i wanted to do with my life ended up coming out to la i was in new york that's where i was working um in school but i had only lived there for uh like a year because before that i was in texas um and so I come to LA and I got booked on Larry King live and I was scared shitless. <laughs> and it was like a whole thing. I show up and I'm in the green room and they're like, Dr. Drew, what book are you promoting? And he's like, Oh, this book. And then they're like, Dr. Ahmed, what book are you promoting? And then they're like, Dr. Santa Maria. And I'm like, not a doctor. Don't call me that. And then they're like, well, what book do you, have? I'm not promoting anything. Why am I here? Why am I here? And I was like, so freaked out the whole time. Um, and then it turns out, and I think I did pretty okay. Like I held my own against like, you know strong older white men and it was you know it was good and everybody is really nice and blah 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 later they're promoting the show and the commercial is a clip of me going the mind exerts power over the brain <laughs> and this clip is pulled from me going like this this is the actual quote during the episode a lot of people want to think that the mind exerts power over the brain, but really we've debunked dualism and the mind and the brain are two sides of the same coin. And I directly contradict and they use that as a fucking promo for the show. I love that. <laughs> It would make you so gun shy going forward to choose all of your words. Like, okay, they can't. I need yeah. to do some weird, glitchy, sort of uneditable move in between the things I say. And the thing is, you can't live like that. And I've had friends, like scientist friends, who have been burned by Discovery Channel documentaries where they were interviewed about like some sort of, you know, shark or about something. And they've like said all the scientific things that they need to say. And then later they, it's, they put out one of these docu-fiction things and it makes it seem like this person saying that Loch Ness Monster exists. Yeah. And they're like, I never, what? I didn't say any <laughs> of that. Oh my God, how did they do that? It's pretty scary. Yeah. I'm so glad I don't have to get quoted in that way. I, I, sometimes in stand-up shows, as far as going back to like things that you say and not remembering them, <laughs> you have material that like, this isn't a great example, but I mean, for most people, when they're hearing it for the first time, they're soaking it in. But if you've, you know, whether it's the first or hundredth time, you're moving on to like, you're thinking of the next thing to say. So you're always kind of right in that moment. And there, you know, if two minutes ago you were talking about potatoes and then this would always happen. Be talking about some, some subject, say potatoes. I don't know why that would be the joke, but two minutes later talking with someone and then saying, you did what? And then someone in the front row goes, blah, blah, blah. And you go, Oh, right. Someone from the side would yell out French fries. And then you go, What? Like, just so foreign. Where would that even come from? A French fries? And then someone yeah. else has to go, or, or usually they defend themselves, because you're talking about potatoes. Like, oh, good Lord. <laughs> that, I've moved so far beyond that. I, my mind is nowhere near that now. And mm. that's just a synopsis, I think, in a weird way, or a little microcosm of us as humans. Like, we're all existing on these different time scales 
and trying to like sync up with each other and be like, you feel like I feel right now. Like, no, no. But in eight months when I've seen the same documentary you have. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, isn't that the worst when you're talking to somebody and you're like, oh my God, did you see that whatever? And they're like, no. And I'm like, why? Why can't I talk about this I with you? Talk why do you live under it? a rock? <laughs> so frustrating. Jim Gaffigan used to have a really great joke. I mean, his like early half hour stand up special where he was like, it's yeah, that exact premise is like showing up to work and be like, hey, I saw Heat last night. Be like, this movie came out 10 years ago. I want to talk about it right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. So well, true. this was fun. I, this went way longer than we were anticipating, but damn this it. Is what I I, feel... This is what I thought might happen, which yeah. is why I didn't want to squeeze it into those little hour slots we had earlier. I know. Part of me was thinking, like, when we had that brief open one hour window, like, maybe that'll be a good thing. Maybe it'll force us, but why would we? It's fun to. I haven't seen yeah, you forever. Just can do more, catch more up. episodes. Don't you like cut yours up into multiple episodes? I might. I feel like during this, because it's so weird, I've, I've never just like been on a real weird schedule or I just kind of put them out wherever. But when I do, they've been a little longer. So... Oh, you don't have a regular, like, air date, drop date? I used to. And then it seemed like people didn't really care if I just kind of went whenever. So I try to keep it on Tuesday, but... You know, if I don't, it, I'm not getting a lot of like emails like, where's the new episode? So I, there's so there's so many of them out now. I think people just kind of pick and choose when they listen to what. So it's more of a, a maybe a binge type show. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't get a nice. ton of feedback on that. So that's just something I'm kind of guessing at. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think that my listeners would really care, honestly, so long as my frequency was the same. But I feel because my Patreon is set up to charge per episode not per month mm-hmm. I, I would feel guilty doing more th- so, so that's why I keep to like every Monday it's a single episode because if I were to put out another one on a Thursday then I feel like they would be like I didn't sign up for you to oh, charge me yeah. again this week you know yeah, so, yeah. I don't know that's smart yeah, I, I I need to probably give more thought to it. But it's been kind of nice, really, especially during this. Like some days I just don't feel like doing podcast stuff. I feel like doing other stuff. And then I just oh, Some days like, I don't feel like pants. <laughs> like I don't feel like anything. There are days where I do nothing. Yeah. I, I mean, we could go on. Because I what I've been telling people, and this seems like self-helpy stuff, but it's just me. And I, it's mm-hmm. been very effective is when I have one of those days, I just let myself. I just yeah, go too. like, don't beat yourself up. We're in the middle of something so strange, existential as a word that's come up a lot. But for the first time, you're kind of feeling that like the meaninglessness and the silliness. And that's one thing you can get your head around. But the idea that it would be abbreviated or abruptly sort of changed or this whole paradigm switched. I keep thinking of a little girl's voice and or an old woman's voice from some movie in the future going, the adults all thought the virus would go away. (laughs) (laughs) And that frightens me. And then, so I just let those days happen and just don't do shit. And then I just try to like be somewhat productive the next day. But yeah, everyone's been real cool uh, with the unpredictable release schedule this i think i'm not trying to be productive my mo is like i want to do the bare minimum and just really take care of myself because i'm actually on leave from school right now i took leave because we were supposed to start filming the next season of brain games Mm -hmm. and then the pandemic happened so and then it just keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back so now i'm on leave from school and so i'm not doing school and i'm not working and i mean it's gonna suck because when i have to go back to filming I'm also going to have to go back to school. Yeah. Um, So it's going to be like just exactly what I was trying to avoid, but it's been nice to just not do anything. And so my only responsibilities right now are talk nerdy and the skeptics guide. 
which nice. is like, okay, I can handle that. That's yeah. not that hard. So beyond that, I'm like, today I'm going to eat a vegetable. And then that's like my goal. <laughs> or And I'm doing like all these arts and crafts, like I talked about. I'm making like bath products and I have like mandala coloring books and I'm making jewelry. I bought so many DIY arts and crafts kits online. It's a thing. And th- those are my little goals. I'm, I'm still using my daily planner and all it has in it is when I wake up, when I go to sleep how many glasses of water I drank, whether or not I worked out. And then like my top goals are all really funny things like take out the trash. <laughs> like They're like yeah. really basic. Cannot stress that enough. How like if you yeah. just have one thing like today, I'd love to clip my fingernails. You might not get it done. Exactly. <laughs> you just might be like, you know what? It's not going to harm anyone if they go till tomorrow. But if you get it done, one thing happens. Either you feel good about that you did it or for me, luckily, I feel like what's been happening is I start doing one thing and then, oh, I can I can grab a screwdriver and tighten up that little thing. Yep, Boom, that happens two for me things, too. great day. And then two I have days where more. I do a lot and then days where I do nothing. And so you'll see in my planner, it'll have the things I want to get done. And then some have question marks. I'm like, I'm never going to get to that. And then there's like basic things where I'm like, whoop, didn't have a chance to answer the three emails that have been waiting. <laughs> so I have to cross it off and put it on the next day. Answer three emails. <laughs> then by then it's like six. Um, or what? not that I only get that many, but I, you know, the ones I actually need to answer. Um, and yeah, so things like walk killer. Mm-hmm. Like these are important things because I have the luxury of just walking outside and letting him pee on the bush on the corner. Yeah. And that, so can, like actually taking them on a wash with walk with the leash and the mask and everything. That's like a, whoa, we're like going on a journey. <laughs> so yeah. Cool. Those are my accomplishments. Good. Glad you're doing it. Have you, yeah. I'm starting to, it's like a ba- game of battleship in a certain way where like people's actions, I'm, tr- you, we get so used to normal life where a week goes by between receiving an email and you're like, no, oh, of course they're busy. But now I'm like, I know this person's life. I don't think they're (laughs) that busy. So I've really enjoyed like understanding. Oh, okay. They're they're in the same boat. I know for sure. Yeah, They're just in a weird headspace. Yeah. Yeah, My friend Rachel texted me earlier today because she's a photographer and she takes picture. Her new thing is like pictures of people during the pandemic. So she goes and takes pictures of them on the front porch and their mask. It's kind of like little portraits of people in place. So she's been saying, I want to come by and do yours. Um, And I had to cancel once. And then this time, you know, we're, we're, texting back and forth how's this weekend great what when's good i'm like there's i have zero things to do like she's like you know like what time of day i'm like any time of day like literally the 48 hours that are the weekend are yours you just tell me when and, and i'm available um so and then watch i'll be like i'm i'm tired can we do it yeah. later <laughs> I've been like real open. Someone asked me to do a podcast like, you know, in a week. And I was like, I got to be honest, my enthusiasm varies so much day to day. I can't, I'll try on that day to be up and spry and ready for it. But I might just want to like tool around in the shed or something all day. Or I might just want to like watch Netflix. I haven't done that in a while. I haven't really just lazed around. So I'm, I'm making progress into like treating this a little bit as normal life and getting my mind off of it. Oh, I'm not. But I love it. Because to me, this is vacation. Like, that's how I have to view it. Because my normal life is bananas. You've been going at a clip for a while Yeah, it's filming. It's seeing patients. It's taking tests. It's writing papers. And um, 
recording two podcasts and guesting on other people's show it's bananas so to me this is like i don't want to be productive i want to be the opposite of productive and so for me binging out on netflix all day like i'm also usually doing diamond painting or color by number or like i'm using my hands because i need to do or i'm knitting or something yeah but i don't see that as productivity as much as like self-care yeah um oh yeah we're probably seeing two of the same things and just through different lenses could be that too yeah like i'm I'm doing it because i want to do it and whether i finish it or not literally doesn't matter yeah (laughs) i think we could all we should just start every email with how what are you doing to take your mind off of this nightmare yeah and we go oh it's I'm staying productive. Oh, you mean you're doing self-care? Self-care. You know, like, yeah, exactly. Oh. All I'm doing is self-care. It's my journal is like, what self-care? And then it's like the whole thing is filled. And then it's like, you know, for work. And I'm like, nothing. <laughs> yeah. Do you miss Usually it? Do you it's want like it to go personal back? to do and work to do and work is really long and personal. And now it's like the opposite. Yeah. I like that. Do you miss it? I mean, I think some people have, you know, I, that I talk to a lot of my friends are like, maybe this will just help us re- calibrate a little bit as we step forward into it or is there going to be this makeup speed this warp speed to catch back up to where we were i think that in a way i have chosen a vocational path for me that is a good match for my personality because i like to it's not that i like to work hard and play hard i like to work hard and relax hard and so like (laughs) i work hard i relax hard like I don't miss working because I know it's going to come back. And when it comes back, it's going to come back with a vengeance. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm doing it, I'm going to love it. I love being on set and I always forget it. I'm always loathing it because that first 5 a.m. call time slaps you in the face Mm -hmm. and you're like, this is going to suck. But then you get there and you're like, Oh yeah, it's so fun. And I do have downtime so I can get my schoolwork done in in the trailer in the dressing room or, you know, whatever. Cause most of production is hurrying up and waiting, Mm -hmm. especially when you're on camera. Um, And so uh, it's like, but I know it's going to be bananas and I know it's going to kick my ass. And it's sort of like when people ask me, because I travel a lot for work and they're like, oh my God, do you love that? Is that not the best thing? And I'm like, listen, I love it until I don't anymore. And that's how I feel about everything. It's like, I love filming until I'm over it. And luckily that's usually right around when you're rapping. Like it's, you're usually rapping after you're over it, but you're, you don't have to be over it for too long. Yeah, And then it's like, you know, I'll, I'll have a stint at a clinic and I'll love it until I start to feel burned out. And then luckily it'll end. And, you know, my semester, I'll love it until it, I'm done with it. And then luckily that ends. And I think the same thing about the pandemic, but that's my work schedule. That's how I work. And I think that that's what keeps me um, happy. I think if I were nine to five and I were looking forward to going back to nine to five, some people thrive in that. I cannot do it. Mm-hmm. I need like a project and then the project's over. Then I'm onto a new project and then that project's over. Yeah. The seasonality of television really helps me. And I don't know what I'm going to do when I get my PhD because I don't know if I could handle being a professor or maybe private practice will work for me. I mean, and you know, I want to work with people who are, who are dying. And I know that this sounds really dark and I totally don't mean this to be dark at all, but there is something I think really beautiful about being as close to somebody as you possibly can during a very vulnerable time in their life and really being authentic and raw and real. And then it being over. Yeah. You know, it's not, I'm not going to have relationships with patients for 10 years. That's not the type of therapeutic practice I want to do. My hope is that I'll be very, very close to somebody and then it'll be hard because I'll lose them, but I'll have, 
hopefully been able to experience something with them that you almost would have to take 10, 20 years to get to with somebody who's younger and at a different place in their life. Yeah. I mean, it is, I could see how that'd be painted as dark. It's just atypical. It's just not a sensation that people seek out. I, it's yeah it's like i think some people find it dark because it's like well i'm not gonna have to worry about repeat clients and, you know like that kind of a thing and it's like that's not why it's just to me it's weirdly a perk but to other people they might not see it that way yeah but I'm, i have this weird sense of humor anyway about that kind of stuff because i'm like pro euthanasia right and pro dying with dignity and assisted suicide and i remember that we were at, at a a session for school once and they were doing a suicide um workshop and i was in the bathroom washing my hands and i ran into a friend of mine from school and i was like oh what session are you off to now and she was like oh suicide and i was like for or against and she looked at me like i was like a murderer <laughs> and i was like sorry i have to explain myself <laughs> i work on it's like oh jesus christ you know what i mean so yeah there's that but i think you have to have that especially when you're very existential especially when you're dealing with trauma and tragedy and suffering and death there's like an absurdity to all of it and there actually weirdly becomes a lightness to it that's not a disrespect thing yeah it's sort of what mary roach does so well in stiff actually in all of her books is she's able to be funny like raw and like cuttingly funny but she never offends it's never at somebody's expense and yeah. i think that's really beautiful yeah i know doctors sometimes get um criticized for that like if there's someone were to mm-hmm. stumble by the nurse's station and see, hear them all laughing and they'd be like well mm-hmm. that we have to have a release we cannot be you know if they were just all morose the whole time they would go insane so they have to kind of have this like well you know making quips and silly jokes and maybe if you heard like hey that's my relative don't yeah but i think that there's also there's a balance right there's a way to be funny and and uh, you know experience the absurdity of all of it but still respect the the dead or the dying and still be like um you know very authentically um uh dig dignit what's the what's the dignified form of this word i'm trying dig but like giving dignity oh um <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like to like to like respect oh somebody's like a reverence dignity. maybe something yeah like that? reverent like i think you can be reverent and you can also be funny at the same time and i think that Politi- good politicians are very good at that. I think that uh, religious leaders are often good at that. Therapists are often very good at knowing exactly when humor yeah. is therapeutic and exactly when it's disrespectful. Um, and you have to kind of toe, toe that line a lot, for sure. It kind of goes in with what you were saying, too, about being sort of blunt. The person caring for your relative in that situation is doing more than whatever quiet sort of reverence you're holding is doing. You might think it's being helpful, but they know the medicine, they know the treatment, they know the root cause, the physiological elements involved. Everything they are doing is more beneficial and useful. So cut them a little slack if, you know, maybe their bedside manner isn't exactly what you'd like it to be. And also, I think for healthcare providers, you know, the 
important thing is to be compassionate to especially those who deal with end of life issues. It's important. And you'll see this a lot with hospice nurses. They're compassionate, they're kind, but they're not liars. Mm -hmm. And so they'll be like, I think now it's time to start preparing because I don't think that she's going to live through the night. And this is something that I want you to be ready for. What can I do? Like it's, it's sometimes you have to be really matter of fact, because what they used to do in this very kind of paternalistic and you'll still sometimes see it is like use euphemisms and yeah. dance around these things and it actually fucks people over because they're like what are you saying or <laughs> yeah. they're giving you false hope or they're making you think that it's not as bad as it is and it's like you have to be very clear and very to the point sometimes but you can do that compassionately and empathically and with a lot of dignity and respect I think those those things don't have to be opposites yeah hell yeah well, sorry, went back to death. You were trying to say goodbye, and then I'm like, let's talk for 20 more minutes. All right, well, I forget that like that's your specialty. I always think of clinical psychology, and then I forget that you like have these really in-depth fascinations with with death. Death that are maybe they're going to be revolutionary because it's still in a lot of ways like such a an untapped frontier. So I'm I'm excited to see um, where your where your voyage takes you. Me too, man. <laughs> me too. <laughs> it's been fun catching up. Skeptics yeah. Guide to the Universe, Talk Nerdy to Me, Voyager. Is that available anywhere? Oh, Explorer. Explorer. Uh, yeah, not Voyager. Uh, and also just Talk Nerdy, not Talk Nerdy to Me. <laughs> oh, I call it to me. That's, I feel <laughs> yeah, like that's that was, not what it's called. That's and that's a long lingo. story short, but that is owned by Ariana Huffington because that was a video series I did at HuffPost. So when I spun off and I started my own podcast, I had to change the name. Oh, good to yeah. know. Okay. So Maintain my IP. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Explorer and then Brain Games. Now it's Brain Games. Yeah. Brain Game Explorer um, is over, but I think you can still probably catch it on Disney Plus or, you know, anywhere where you would not watch National Geographic. And of course, Talk Nerdy and Skeptic's Guide are on Tay Interwebs. Um, Brain Game Season 1 finally just dropped to Disney Plus. So it's actually kind of a new thing that it's available on Disney Plus because before it was only on um, National Geographic. And yeah, we'll be filming Season 2 soon. So I'm really looking forward to that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, hang in there during the, the quarantine and uh, if you need to just shoot the shit, we're, we're here hanging out. So give a call. Nice. Will do. It was really fun catching up. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Well, I hope you liked it. That was a longer one. As I mentioned, no, I inaccurately got it uh, as Tuesday for some reason. It's always been Monday. I don't know why I panicked in the moment, but it, the release of this has been sort of atypical during this. Um, our space is different with Zoom. I can't really podcast as much out in the garage as I like. The internet's just not as reliable, which means sharing space and um, it just some of the logistics involved in podcasting are a little bit more challenging. So um, I'll do it as much as I can or as often as I can, but the release schedule may be a little erratic during this. I haven't heard from anyone thus far saying, hey man, I expect it Monday morning. And I will not be satisfied if it's not there. Our schedules are so off and people aren't commuting to work in the same way as before. So I think everyone's okay with that. But if you would prefer something you can uh, rely on and this is one of those things, let me know. I'll make 
a, a more concerted effort as it is it will likely just come out when it's possible and and some of them the bad part of that is that um, might not come out as frequently the good part is that the episodes might be a little longer so rather than breaking up into two parts uh this one was like two hours and it continues to go as i'm rambling here you're like dude just wrap it up got it this would normally have been a patreon thing that you know i would have and there is some actually the first like 10 minutes if you want to hear how we just kind of rambled about hey what's going on Check out the Patreon. This show is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. It's provided without ads uh, because of that. And I really genuinely appreciate it, especially during this. It just makes doing this a little, all that much uh, more worth it. So uh, if you want some behind-the-scenes things, extra bonus episodes, etc., uh, Patreon is the way to do that. Thanks to those of you who do support it. I sincerely mean it. Thanks to Dan, as always. Rooting for him and Ashley down under. If you're one of these idiots out there with no mask on, what are you doing? Not everyone that is undergoing cancer treatment or is immunocompromised or uh, pregnant or a number of other things is going to be wearing a t-shirt telling you as such. Yes, your rights may be infringed upon. No one is saying you don't have your rights. They're asking you to wear a mask to think of other people. And if we left it open, all the bars would open up. Or 50% would. And then the ones across the street were like, damn it, everyone's going there, we're losing business. So they've had to make some tough decisions. I get it where you would say that's dirty and they're taking away our rights. I should be able to go in a grocery store completely naked and, and not wearing a mask and I should be on fire, it's fine. We live in a rules society. And unfortunately, the establishments, the private property you're on, can choose to save the population's life even if you don't like it. So yes, your rights may be a little different, uh, but they are because your stupidity and your rigid view of what your rights are have blinded you to being a kind person, to just wearing a goddamn mask, to be thoughtful for other people out on the street so you're not sending droplets out into the atmosphere that make their way into they, their system and murder them. So don't be a murderer. Stay home. If you go out, don't walk around with a tough, I'm breathing heavy. I'm looking in your direction. I got my rights. You're the worst. Um, sorry to go on a little rant here at the end, but I don't think anyone's listening. It's been such a long episode. Wear a mask. Uh, and for Penny's sake, who works at a grocery store? For Ashley's sake, who's going through cancer treatment? For Jean's sake, who just had a double mastectomy and is in a sensitive spot in life. You know, the, the cancer is not exactly 100% gone and never going to return. It's uncertain for everyone that has something like that done. So wear a mask just to show like, hey, I don't know who you are or what your life is about, but I'm guessing you might know someone that doesn't want to die. I got my germs bottled in right here on my face. So please do that. I don't think I have to tell you that. If you listen to this show, you likely like things that are the opposite of this sort of ranting and screaming and shouting, I apologize. Got a little carried away there. We'll keep things demurred and civil and thoughtful and respectful, and we'll do our best to be a source of good in the going forward. Penny's making masks for people. Maddie's working at a grocery store. Yoichi has been... Uh, putting together the uh, pay it forward thing with the checks with the check.org i think that's still happening there's likely hopefully at some point going to be another round of stimulus checks that's a great way to uh send yours to someone that could use it more if you don't need it Stephen yates reached out immediately and was like how can i help there are people that are doing great i like our little enclave here our community of people if i'm not mentioning you currently it's because i'm just coming up with a list off the top of my head and as soon as i'm done recording i'll go oh shoot i forgot so-and-so, 
And I apologize if I have done that currently. But we need to wrap it up. It's just gone on too long. This is a song that when I first saw it, maybe pre-pandemic, right at the beginning-ish, had like um, a few hundred views on YouTube. And I thought, oh, good, I'll be glad to share that. Now that we're getting around to it, it has, I want to say, over 300,000 at this point. But if you make a song like this, it is likely going to get played on this show because it's smooth, it creates an atmosphere, you can kind of just zone out and let yourself feel relaxed and like you're drifting off out of a cave in the nether regions of deep space into wherever you want to go. Maybe your particles want to all break apart a little bit. Maybe you want to head back to Earth and help out. You're free to go wherever you want, but a song like this will help that be achieved. This is White Jeans from Sales. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.